0: Welcome to episode 114 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever discussing our passion for Linux. I'm Zeb, and with me today are my, my three podcasting behemoths. Noah, how are you this week?
1: Excellent, Zeb. Well, I'm uh, fighting a bit of a cold, but I'm here.
0: Good man, good man. And Ryan, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. I went outside yesterday and got burnt. Don't go outside. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you forgot the old sun cream on the, right. on the nose there. Yeah, And Michael, how have you been?
3: I'm just tickety-boo.
0: <laughs> you love it. What?
3: It's It means great or okay. wonderful awesome. or something. It's a British thing. I don't know.
0: Yeah, no, it's perfectly understandable. You See? To,
3: That's what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, look it up on the Urban Dictionary. You'll be fine. So, Noah, what's, what's uh, new with you this week? Well, uh, we're prepping for a colo.
1: Uh, we purchased a Dell R710 and we are uh we've decked it out with a bunch of drives we've got Western Digital Reds 4 terabytes for the main storage um those are going to be put in a in a raid level 0 configuration and then we have the uh we've got some Samsung 850 Pro SSDs that we're going to be using for the operating system and for uh more demanding VMs and uh, we're actually racking that in uh, in a data center, and we're going to move all of our hosted services over to it. So people that uh, purchase services from Altaspeed will now own the physical hardware that those that that those services are running on.
0: Oh, nice! So you'll be able to control quality better,
1: uh, control quality better, and also uh, we'll know that everything is backed up. We ran into a small little issue uh, in the last week where we had a hosting provider that uh, their backup system. Uh, didn't do what we thought it did which was it oh. wasn't backing up the stuff uh, and so that we we learned that lesson the hard way but that's okay because uh, we're gonna move forward and we're gonna
0: make it better great stuff good news and Ryan how about your week
2: I've had a fantastic week minus the going outside part but while I was inside and safe and away from that dangerous Sun I was able to make sure that destination Linux is de Google so we dropped a Cloudron setup for DL using DigitalOcean and we are now on Etherpad because when the show started we used Google Docs. That was just the way it's been forever and uh, finally we are officially Google free. I've also dropped my own versions of this for myself using Cloudron as well which I just really like because it's simple to do NextCloud or Etherpad or anything else you want uh, very simply. So I have that set up. And also, you'll notice the screen in the background, which we touched on a little bit at the end of the last episode, which is why you should listen always to the very, very end, even after announcements, even if you've heard them a million times, where Michael pointed out Screenly. And what's really cool about Screenly is this is an open source project that does digital signage. So while I'm using it to basically troll everybody, what a business (laughs) would utilize is utilize this for their storefront, or say if you're a restaurant, you would put a menu on this. Well, if you've ever looked up digital signage costs, it's not cheap. Some of these packages are $50 to $100 a month for them to have a platform to handle digital signage. But this particular company, Screenly, it's completely open source and it's made to run on a Raspberry Pi. The Raspberry Pi is sitting behind the TV and it is running all of that, but I can control it from a web app right now and you know update it add new things or like it's stuck here for 30 seconds change the time that switches but i can manually as you can see just flip through from a web control right to uh screenly itself so it's a very cool option for businesses out there if you have a small business and you want some digital signage you can utilize this for free initially and there's some pro options as well to give you some more features but it's very cool that it's open source uh, for for people to in businesses to be able to utilize.
3: Yeah, very cool.
0: Cool, nicely. And uh, Michael, what have you been up to this week?
3: I have been doing um, a, not a lot of Linux stuff recently, except for like you know preparing the show and getting like some stuff fixed every once in a while. But I have been doing a lot of stuff with the Ubuntu Touch, and it's actually quite good. Like there are certain things that I wish it could do, and it can't. But overall, it can do a lot of cool things. And one of the things that it can do is it has this thing where, if you, I don't know if you can see it, but the right here is the web app creator. So you can create your own apps really easily without having to do any code. And it takes a few, you got you to get learn how the hooks work and permission systems work. But after you do that, it, does, it takes them very, not very long to learn how it works. And it allows you to make any web app you want. And you can also put it into the open store for sharing with other people. So it's a very cool thing. Um, there's some. It would be nice if there's some other things that were fixed on it. But f- overall, the um, the experience so far has been quite good, and I have not had any huge uh, barriers to use it. So I look forward for the rest of the challenge that I'm doing, and um, I'll be making some videos specifically about different pieces of it pretty soon. Well, I say pretty soon, but who knows?
2: I have a question on that. So one of the issues I had with the Ubuntu Touch phone was that a lot of the apps were just web launchers. Mm -hmm. Now, this in itself, I don't care, right? It doesn't matter to me as long as the website actually shows up properly when you launch it. Because a lot of times these web apps would open this gigantic page and I assume (laughs) creation of the web app And the, you know, owner of the website or app on the web changing their, you know, changing their website a little bit, things got out of control. So is there a way that you can adjust in that app where you're creating your own web app, the resolutions or how things show up? Or is it just grabbing it and shrinking it down? It's mostly just grabbing it. But I think that there is work on making it possible to add
3: some like style sheets and stuff. Um, But I don't know if that is, I don't think that's available yet. And I think that's... um, you know, I don't think it's anytime soon. I think it's pretty far from that. But um, there is there is a lot of things you can do to adjust um, various different aspects of the web apps. But if it comes down to it not being mobile optimized, it won't work that well. Like there's a couple things like uh, in order to use Bitwarden, for example, you have to use the Web Vault. And the Web Vault is not optimized for mobile. So it's uh, very weird and awkward. Uh, but in most of the things that are like, for example, if you have TweetDeck, if you look at on a, a screen for um, like a desktop, it takes up the whole screen and there's a ton of columns. Whereas on the mobile version, it just shows one column at a time. And you just slide, slide horizontally back and forth to, for, to get the rest of the columns. So it works quite well. So it depends on the web app. But most of the time they work fine and sometimes they don't. So it just depends. Mm-hmm. But so far. I found quite a few things that it's beneficial, and there's you know there's a lot of things where, for example, on the Android version of YouTube app, when you leave the app, it stops playing unless you pay for the Pro version. Whereas in the Ubuntu Touch version, you just activate this thing that says "disable app suspension," and it will just continue playing in the background no matter what. So you can switch different apps and it doesn't matter. It actually works quite well. And it's um, like, there's different things like that that are really beneficial. And the fact that all of the apps are contained in like separate containers for security is really nice too. And uh, so far I'm I'm liking it. And uh, well, we'll see what happens in the future, but there's quite a few things to
2: like.
0: Very cool. Excellent. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, which we learned about last week, and more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month or you can make use of their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That's darn near free, Ryan, isn't it? DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for two months free with a $100 credit by going to do. CO forward slash DL. Now you can use that $100 credit to try out a bunch of their small droplets or some beefy droplets. If you want, you can even test run their huge 16 gigabyte RAM 6 CPU droplet that has 6 terabytes of transfer. Again you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 credit by going to do.co forward slash dl. So, before we move on to the email, um, it's now the opportunity for me to give out a very special thanks to everyone who has supported the GoFundMe page to bring me to America. Um, I'm truly humbled that you guys and girls have raised $1,441 of the $2,000 goal, and that's just incredible. Your generosity is astounding. The page is still up, um, and if you want to see me, along with the rest of the crew, all together at Southeast Linux Fest, any amount of donations would be appreciated. Um, we're going to be doing some live shows from Southeast Linux Fest, along with the Ask Noah show, and we'll do some live streaming, apparently, of me making sure that Michael is um, playing Two. ball and uh, not, not, not acting naughty, so I'm going to be I the school teacher itself. And, and keep him under control so let's have a last little push anything you can donate would be very very appreciated um, and again thank you very much from me personally so the page for self and booking your room is finally live so go get your reservations now at www.southeastlinuxfest.org forward slash question mark P equals 5255. Five, five. We'll put that in the yeah. show notes in case you didn't understand what I was reading out there. But the page is up. Go and get yourself booked in and find out the sort of things that are going to be happening at Self this year.
2: And I'm getting a lot of people coming saying this is they're going to go to Self this year because they're hearing Zeb's going to be there. Zeb, you are very popular, sir. Uh, but I'm getting a lot of interest, even in my own, you know, Dos channel, et cetera, people asking questions about how to get to Self, et cetera. One of the confusing parts, I will say, um, Noah, maybe something we can give back to the event holders is how long it took because a lot of people want to book even further ahead, especially internationally, because it could take six months before, is generally when you save the most money. And I know they have to work out a deal with the hotel, et cetera, but just feedback on there in general. But a lot sure. of people will be coming this year. And I really hope this is the biggest Southeast Linux Fest show, you know, crowd ever. It would be amazing just to see those halls filled with people. There are so many tables that are set I up know, there's
1: a lot of spare room to fit anymore i know but know? i want <laughs> more I,
2: I just want to see linux blow up here at southeast linux fest to where they're like hey we're gonna have to get a second hotel because that's what like dragon con in atlanta had to do eventually right. three hotels you know combined to be able to hold it all in and i would love to see that kind of support for linux out there but they've got tables there where you could play with a lot of these distros or gadgets they've got all kinds of of course conferences and places for you to learn new things from really smart people and of course we all get to follow noah to lunch so he picks where exactly we're going. Yep. <laughs> right.
1: i'm gonna bring a yeah. big hat or something like with an arrow <laughs> yeah. bring a big tux costume
0: there you go. But don't underestimate the pull of the rest of the team. I've seen a lot of comments where, yes, they want to come and see me because it will be novel because it will be my first time there, but they also want to see you guys as well. They want to see the whole team together. I,
1: I, I agree. I think people are very excited to see Ryan, myself, and Zeb. It's not just – <laughs> and Michael. And Michael and uh, Michael. No, they they want to see the Destination Linux team, and I think, yeah. that, I think really what's going to be fun is the synergy in doing a live
2: show together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It'll be a blast so the email
3: from this week is from Rodney and he says first off love the show everyone is great uh, especially Noe and his knowledge he's very knowledgeable and Michael is snarky but knowledgeable Ryan is an instigator I'm
2: the instigator Noe really
3: <laughs> <laughs> and Zeb is practical and knowledgeable a perfect mix of personalities. Uh, personalities on to the question each of you, at some point in time, have discussed privacy and their opinion about ditching Google apps. You've also frequently promoted Firefox over Chrome and Thunderbird as the preferred email client. What about a replacement for Google Calendar? Many use the Gmail via web browser and Google Calendar integrates very well with that, but many also use Google Calendar from their phones. So what is a good replacement for Google Calendar that is accessible from many, many on multiple platforms? So, Keep up the excellent work. He also says, also, if you're not hosting a local meet and greet like Ryan, then you're f- falling short and just as good at and you're not just as good as Ryan. Uh, but I would like to point out that I started doing that. He took my example. So I was the instigator but made for it that.
2: Because Linux and coffee. Come on. Amazing. <laughs> well, yours is
3: also consistent in the, the place it is. So I guess there's that, too. So.
1: so I just want to be clear, Ryan, when you when you go out, then it's Linux and coffee. No, you don't say Kofi.
2: Oh, you're right. I should change it to Linux and Kofi and really mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> of course.
1: <laughs> I'm just wondering if you always mispronounce coffee, or if it's just sometimes. Just Michael. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: So this what? is not something that I can help Rodney with because I'm one of the two filthy jaw booters. So, Rodney, one, the
2: only. over okay. to you, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, <laughs> we were talking before the show about the whole Google-Apple phone thing. I have to carry around both. Uh, for my work. But um, as far as getting rid of Google Calendar and de google your life, I think Nextcloud is probably the best solution. We keep recommending to do this across the board for what most people utilize Google services for. There are a lot of articles, by the way, on how difficult it is now to de google your life. They are integrated in so many of your daily things, especially those of you who use Android devices with the stock Android OS, I mean, it's everything they have is integrated into the device itself. Um, but there is uh, a calendar option in Nextcloud and it utilizes CalDev, so it's compatible with all devices, including mobile. Um, so that would be an option for you to use. It's not an easy thing, de getting rid of it, uh, a lot of ways they make things so much easier and free and you don't have to set up your own server. But the cost of that, of course, is your privacy. So it is an important thing, I think, for people to do and Nextcloud is really that gateway. It's really the first solution that I've seen and now that you can install it via Snap that it really doesn't take that much effort. I think even somebody who's not super technical could go out on DO, get Nextcloud server set up in a couple of hours and then you've got it for life. uh, Minus the maintenance, make sure you read the security aspects of how to secure a server, And uh, there are articles out there on DigitalOcean to do that. What are some of the first things you should do? How to use SSH, get rid of the password logins, how to secure it. So make sure you do that piece. But in a couple hours, someone who's not even technical could do it because people like us can drop them in minutes.
3: And also quick note about the NextCloud thing. It is, it's is—it's very easy with the Snap. And I think that Do also has an easier way to do it as well in their own separate thing. But uh, I just checked and Cloudron also supports NextCloud. So you want to easily install that way. It'd be a good, and a good option to try out if you want to check it out because you can get two apps for free. And NextCloud uh, is, is a really good option for doing it if you want to check it out.
0: So you can see why we want to hear from you, our listeners. So send us an email this week. Um, ask that burning question or simply give us some feedback. We always want to hear about your favorite Linux software or tip and trick because it adds to the show later on. So send your email to comments at destinationlinux.org. Destination Linux has gone through a lot of changes in the past year. So we kicked off this new segment last week so you could learn more about each of us on Destination Linux. In this second uh, mini host interview we're going to talk to the instigator and learn some more about his journey and his passions Um, and if you didn't watch the beginning of the show or the big the previous segment we're going to be talking to Ryan
1: so Ryan the first question we want to ask uh, everybody that is doing this segment is how did you get started into linux tell us the story of your great conversion from the ugly ugly world of proprietary software to sweet software freedom
2: (laughs) it was a beautiful one um i'm gonna make this quick because a lot of people actually know this part uh, about my journey because it's something we've talked about a lot but i I, don't i basically started in doing a youtube channel and was doing anything geek related building computers showing off parts etc I started doing some privacy and security videos within Windows, such as how to turn off some of the privacy-invasive features in Windows, et cetera, things like that. Uh, As I was doing that, some community members from Linux were coming in saying, hey, if you're really into this privacy and security thing, you should check out Tails and Wanix. So that was kind of my first introduction into looking into Linux. So I started checking these things out and I started learning more about Linux. There were, I wasn't getting a lot of views on my channel at that time at all. But anytime I did security and privacy, people really seemed interested in it. So that kind of led me down the path of looking into more privacy related items. And of course, Linux naturally comes up. So all, all I started doing research in it and all I could find is videos of people taking really old hardware and putting Linux on it and it looked pretty cool. But I had all of this, I'm a big futurist. I love having the latest and ga- greatest gear. I saw nobody really doing any content at all related to let's put it on the latest GPU with the you know, computer with the latest GPU. Let's put it on a computer with the latest CPU. Let's put it on a brand new computer we just built from scratch with all the latest technology. And so I thought, well, this could be a little niche here for me to see if Linux will work that way. So I started this thing that didn't exist called the 30 Days of Linux Challenge which now you're seeing a lot of people start doing these challenges, 30 days of Fedora, 30 days of this, et cetera, 30 which is days cool. of Ubuntu Touch. I, which I I absolutely. So there you go. Did. 30 days of Ubuntu Touch, which I think is awesome. I love that uh, more people were doing things like that. And what I did is I took Linux and I installed it on the latest and greatest hardware I could afford. Back then it was like an i7-6700K. I think I had an NVIDIA 2070 at the time. And as I was upgrading my machines, and with the, you know, when the 28 or 1080 came out, 1070 and 1080 uh, came out, I would basically just keep putting Linux on it and showing that hey, Linux can game, Linux can do all the graphic editing, designing, word processing, web browsing, video content creation, YouTube, audio work, everything that I was doing uh, on my Windows machine, I could do in Linux so gaming was a little more of the difficult part that's where i always saw people kind of hang up and so i would one of the videos that really i think captured a lot of people's imagination and now of course it's so easy to get people to come into linux with gaming but back then it wasn't as simple was utilizing doom over vulcan so in that video getting over 200 frames per second in linux running vulcan doom which wasn't even a game made for linux really made me excited and the community excited for what Linux was going to become in gaming and look at it now. So essentially, a lot of it was just my interest uh, in security and privacy, but it was also the Linux community. They were the most supportive group of people coming into my channel, a nobody's channel that nobody cared about for the most part, a couple hundred views at max. And just encouraging me through all the stupid things I said during the 30 days of Linux challenge. (laughs) Out of all of the confusion and things I didn't know, you know, a lot of people give the community a lot of flack and some of it's deserved for being, you know, not supportive or go read the manual type of comments and things like that. But in my case, I happened to find the people who were nothing like that, or they found me and they were just so interested in watching this guy go out there and try to make Linux work for him with no. Prior experience with Linux at all, and now I'm here, which is pretty awesome.
1: Just a uh, just a follow up to that. So, did you are you saying that you found it inclusive? You didn't feel like you were being chastised for not having a bet of knowledge because that's something we hear a lot from the from the community. as people say that we've got a long ways to go when it comes to work on being welcoming to new users. It was that not your experience?
2: Not at all. I am well. I don't say not at all. There were individuals who would come in there and leave. A mean comment, but it was surrounded by thirty or forty people who would be Linux experts that would tell them, you know, yeah, like you were born with this, and comments like that to support, you know, hey, he's he's not coming out here saying he's an expert. That was number one. I came out saying I know nothing about this. I'm going to try to figure it out, and. Number two is they just love the idea that I kept jumping in deeper and deeper things. Like it was, you know, I wasn't just going to sit there in Ubuntu. I was going to drop servers. I was going to, um, you know, start writing my own scripts. I was going to go into Arch and whatever, wherever people wanted me to go, I was going to jump in. So there are those people They were there and they weren't for my channel. I think most of them probably saw it and left a nasty comment and left. And I think those people do need to be rooted out of the community uh, through, um, you know, our own open source community way of basically saying, stop acting like that. It's not appropriate. Mm. It doesn't make people want to use Linux. And had those people found me first, I very well probably would have went back to Windows. There's really not a Windows group. I mean, they're out there but not like Linux where it's kind Mm -hmm. of all scattered. When you're a part of it, yeah, they're all scattered. But certainly you don't want to go in a group where it's just full of hate and everyone calls you a moron Mm. either. So, you know, yeah, I would have probably gone back. But the vast majority of people, vast majority by a long shot were Ultra kind and forgiving of many stupid errors that I made in those videos. Well, it's actually
3: interesting because there's like a that... lot of times where I saw some people in the comments when I first started watching your content. It was interesting to see that when you go in, you were, you were going into very deep levels of the system, even though you didn't really know most of it, most of what was going on. And it showed that you were putting in a lot of effort in researching like what you were talking about. There was a couple times where you would say something, I was like. Mm. I see you put effort in, you're wrong, but I see you put effort in and I respect it.
2: A for trying. Yeah. yeah. And there was a lot of <laughs>
3: comments that were like that. So like, even if the, you were wrong about something, you showed that you you were trying to learn and trying to, you know, embrace the system. And a lot of the comments recognized that and were, you know, it was actually, I agree. It was kind of like, if you were to see, um, well, like the community, like the bad side of the community first. That's almost a guarantee people would not want to mm. be around. And yeah. it was really cool to see the, like the, the so much embracing on it.
0: Yeah. yeah. And let's face it, some of those um, bad comments were probably just the YouTube trolls anyway. Nothing to do with them. Oh, yeah. I
2: mean, they yeah. still exist today. So <laughs> it's
0: mm-hmm. yeah, just yeah.
2: much easier when you have a bigger fan base because the fans kind of beat up on them for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, what was some of your first
3: distros that you tried? And what was the, like, the first DE and distro that you fell in love with?
2: So I think uh, Ubuntu was the first distro I officially tried. And I didn't know the difference between, you know, a desktop environment or anything else. I would just go to the download page and just click download for whatever it was. I didn't know there was all of these different desktop environments you could choose from. So it was Unity at the time. Um, I think was the very first video when I looked back that I used. But later on, I when as I started kind of learning more, I fell in love with Ubuntu Studio right away. Ubuntu Studio had... I I never planned to stay in Linux. After the 30 days of Linux was done, I planned to go back to Windows 10 where I had made my living, right? Where I professionally made most of my money, uh, repairing computers and taking viruses off of computers, made lots of money doing that uh, over the years. So I planned to go back to Windows, but the community was the part that kept me in. It became infectious and there was so much learning opportunity there. Um, But Ubuntu Studio specifically, because I didn't know all the tools that were out there for Linux, there was no real good guide to say, hey, you need to use all of this if you want, you know, for your video editing and this for your photo editing and all of that out there. Ubuntu Studio allowed me to go into a distro and it had all of my video editing, photo editing, audio tools built right in. And for somebody who doesn't have some, I didn't have a Michael at that time or a Noah or a Zeb to go to and say, hey, what do I use to do this? It was the perfect setup for me, so I really fell in love with Ubuntu Studio, and that was the XFCE desktop environment. And XFCE still um, is my favorite desktop environment of all time because of the fact that it was the first one I fell in love with. It was the first one I learned how to customize, and XFCE makes it so easy. And it was just so stable uh, at even back then, and so you know, simple things like being able to change your clock from 12 hours to 24 hours is a click in XFCE. There's no special settings GUI you have to go into in the background and then click and find a user assets and then click another menu to get to the clock. It's just right click (laughs) on it, change it. It's, you know, matter of fact, simple, makes sense type of things. And that's what I loved about XFCE and why I'm such a big fan of Sean Davis to this day and the work that that team does.
0: Excellent. So you touched on a little bit about it there, but what was it about Linux that made you want to stick with it?
2: Uh, The community definitely was a big part because I felt like for the first time there was this club of people who all loved and shared this passion for this thing. And so the community was a big part. Number two was I think there were so many misconceptions about Linux to clear up. You know, I went in, like I said, to not continue... (laughs) using Linux, but when I was using it on the latest and greatest hardware, I kept hearing everybody say, oh, good luck. We look forward to crashes. It'll never work. But that wasn't my experience. And I wasn't smart enough to fake it. So it's not like I could have gone on there and tricked it and made it work in the background. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm like, look, Linux works on everything. I, would, I didn't even know the difference you know, between desktop environments, let alone how to fix the stuff. Now, there were certain distros that did not work out of the box and you know, that I would show that. And people could get mad at that sometimes. But I think the educational opportunity in Linux, I've been in computers my whole life. I grew up you know, uh, building computers with my dad. We sold computers in our own small business. And I love, I love and have a passion for anything that's technology. I couldn't believe how much I didn't know about an operating system until I went to Linux. And it's still that way today. It's like every time I turn around, there's something new to learn. And you don't have that in windows because everything is so hidden behind the scenes. Whereas yeah. Linux makes you, forces you to be smart and want to learn.
1: There's been a lot of job speculation on what you do for a living. You've never really talked about it on the show. And so I think the going belief is, I know we understand that you do something uh, in the name of the government, uh, some sort of um, clandestine operation, but uh, <laughs> Outside of uh, either inside work or outside work, what are some of the tools that you use on Linux day to day? What are some of the things that you maybe couldn't live without?
2: I think, you know, even though I'm on Lightworks now, Kaden Live was something that I still would utilize if my Lightworks license was down tomorrow, for instance. So, and Kaden Live got me through all of my videos on my channel, 99% of every video there was edited and done in Kaden Live, so I have a tremendous amount of love for it and now Lightworks um, is are tools that I utilize for video editing. OBS I think is an invaluable tool for screen recording, live casting and being able to do a lot of the content that I produce. So I couldn't live without OBS. GIMP and Blender are my two go-to. Now I am not a Michael so uh what the the small amount of art that i do is laughable at best but for so i apologize to both the gimp and blender creators for mentioning them in my work in the same sentence um but i do my best uh that i can with those tools uh there to create uh graphic effects and things for channels or art for various things that i'm doing on my website i use remina as a tool for all of my ssh clienting um basically saving all of my servers that I SSH into. I don't know if that's the best tool for that, but that's what I utilize and like and Steam and Simple Note. Now, a lot of people talk about Joplin and the Cherry Note, and there's so many alternatives here, and I'm glad there's so many options. But I think I Simple Note was one of the programs I remember looking for specifically in the 30 days of Linux that I needed to replace, that I used a lot, was Evernote and simple note was the first time somebody in the comments on one of my videos suggested hey if you're really wanting to go get away from windows full time check out simple note it's not as robust as some of the other options but it's just still to this day my go-to note you know quick note taker uh, that i have out there so i utilize simple note
1: what do you find is faster for editing is I mean lightworks obviously has a lot of um has a lot of power behind it if you want to do some more advanced complicated things, but for running gunning and cutting, what do you find is is a faster workflow? Do you think Caden Live is faster? you think lightworks is
2: faster? So when we talk about speed, I think Lightworks is certainly faster when it comes to things like the actual rendering of a video. So once you're done doing your edits and you're ready to get that video out in 4K, it's gonna render twice as fast in Lightworks. There are also a lot more advanced options that are, um, cause a lot of times I'll find out CadenLive can actually do some advanced things, but it's so hidden or hard to find. Mm-hmm. Whereas Lightworks, it's in a menu already there for you. Um, but as far as the everyday person who needs to do video editing cuz they want to start a youtube channel or they just want to do some basic family videos caden live is the way to go if you're wanting to do professional applications and i think caden live's faster and easier to kind of be more familiar with right off the bat for your basic things what are most people going to do they're going to adjust audio they're going to want to do cuts and they're gonna to want to throw a couple intros in there. And I think Caden Live is very simple to understand those basic features within the magnetic snapping, et cetera. Whereas Lightworks, there's just so much more in there for professional applications such as the multi-cam support, et cetera, which is also we find out in Caden Live, but hidden again in a lot of the different settings and things. So um, but I love them both. Lightworks is definitely something though for as I want to get, make my videos a little more higher quality. And add a little more effects in them as my channel grows. Lightworks is where I'm leaning
3: towards. Yeah, some of the effects in Caden Live are also limited in certain ways, whereas in Lightworks it does it much better. Um, I, I I'd have to agree with that because Caden Live is a fantastic, powerful, open source editor, but there is a limit where it gets to a point where it's like, yeah, there's Lightworks is definitely going to be a much better thing. And the rendering thing is definitely an issue because there's sometimes yeah. where I've actually had to render this episode, an episode of this show, and it take four or five hours of rendering whereas in other oh. editors it would be you oh, know, 30 minutes or so because or even like the time it would be for like the actual like regular runtime. and i did find out that there is a way to kind of speed up the rendering for Hayden live uh but that does at the moment so far that i could find only works for nvidia cards so uh still mm. need to
1: work on that I- essentially uh, you found yourself in Electron apps and and cross-platform apps. Did the fact that they were cross-platform have anything to do with them becoming the staples for you? Or was it literally just the best tool available on Linux? And so that's what you ended up using.
2: You know, being cross-platform was very important for some of these tools. For instance, for note-taking, sometimes, you know, I'm out and about. I want to be able to take that note and then come home and add to it. My brain is in in some ways like yours, Noah, where it never shuts off, even when I'm trying to sleep, especially when I'm trying to sleep. i am always got some new idea or something popping in there that I want to do or new channel content or new thing I want to play with. I need a app that could work in any platform no matter where I was. So if I was on a work computer and I was like, "Ooh, I have an idea for Destination Linux, I need to be able to pop up an application on my Windows work computer that would allow me to be able to do that. So having something like Simple Note that works on my Android device and my iOS device, uh, Windows if, if it's around and I have to use it by force only, uh, or any other in, in Linux, of course, that is better. a very import, uh, important part. Work doesn't count. Uh, that's a very important part of having applications. So I think it's important. Uh, it wasn't the only factor, but I think that ability that Linux now has for the universal packaging is so critical to being able to utilize tools no matter where you're at.
1: So Michael points out and I guess I kind of want to expand on that just a little bit is you uh, your your computer that you use for the NSA is running Windows and you also come into this from the perspective of a gamer. So do you have do you ever find is there a draw or is there a pull to go back to the Windows 10 world? And if there and and then I guess the, the follow up to that would be if there is a pull or isn't a pull is it more the community or more the technology that keeps you in Linux?
2: It's an interesting question. From a gaming perspective, I would say the first two years ago, there was definitely a pull to go into Windows. Um, one of the things that frustrated me for myself, and in the joke of filthy dual booting is kind of a part of that, because in every good joke, there's a little bit of humor, is we all talk about this being the greatest operating system out there that it's for that it can replace Windows and is better than Windows and Mac OS and in just about every facet. So, for me, the idea then of every time I would boot into Windows to play a game during that time, it felt kind of filthy. Like, I was like, wow, if people could see me now, I'm on a podcast talking about Linux. I'm talking about Linux and all these community events, and then I'm booting into Windows to play a video game so at one point i just decided enough i removed the windows 10 hard drive out of my machine and it's still out of my machine and the only time windows 10 is around is if i do it for work because i feel like if i'm going to say the things that i say on my channel and tell people this is the way to go that you have to live it and that's why I personally chose to, do it. now that's not for everybody and I'm not saying everyone has to be that committed but not everybody's on a podcast and and right. promoting this like I am, so that's why it became important. Uh, with gaming, there's still a little bit of a pull, you know, the latest Resident Evil or something comes out and you wanna play it, but I would say since Proton's launched, like even that Resident Evil example, I can play now. It's just a completely different world. It's never been a better time to be in Linux, it's never been a better time to be in Linux gaming and you really aren't missing out on that much. Most of the AAA games that people are like, oh, you can't play this on Linux, they get in, and all you see is people hating the game to death because it's made by the three big EA, uh, Epic, or whatever, and they hate the game anyway. We so, don't want any more loot crates. Exactly. Am I really missing out on anything? Not really. And plus, <laughs> you know, I have a PS4, worst-case scenario, which uses like an op- uh, open BSD, I think, or a variation thereof. Yeah, a it's free, free BSD. Yeah, so uh you know, I don't feel as guilty booting up the PlayStation 4 if I'm, I just have to play that little latest AAA game.
3: So, w- how would you like to see Linux change in the future?
2: I want to see the main staple distros out mm-hmm. there promote better hardware compatibility that's already being done in the Linux kernel. And I know that this is a topic that people are going to disagree with me on heavily, and I'm okay with that uh for the discussion. But Even if you look at what's happening with the Linux kernel every time it releases, there is all of this hardware support being added in. From Logitech cameras to drawing tablets to monitor high DPI to all of these things, uh, new GPUs, etc. Except most people in the Linux world, your consumer levels now, are not getting access to them for six months or more, waiting on some of the mainstream distros to release their next version. Of Linux. And to me, this is taking all of the incredible hard work that's being done on the kernel and delaying it for half a year before people can actually see it. And in that half a year, there are so many new people who are jumping over, but they just need that Wacom tablet support, or they need that new mouse support, or they need that JMD GPU support. And unless they know how to go in and personally tweak a kernel, or as somebody said in the comment section, we'll just download the beta version of the 19.04 already. Well, that's great. But first of all, that 19.04 wasn't out at the point even to, to test when some of these cards and things released. But number two is most people don't know how to your average consumer is not going to go out and find it. So and I'm not and you don't about want to that.
3: tell them to do that anyway because that's not good advice. Here's this beta thing that might not work and might break because <laughs> it's, it's break beta in. everywhere. Right? Yeah.
2: yeah, and then you've got UKUU and things like that. But then if you come into, and I'm not saying people are going to be you know thinking I'm, I'm um, talking about Arch all the time, but if you look at something like an Arch, which is this rolling distro release or at least has the option to be, I think some of your mainstream distros need to have a rolling release version themselves because most people like myself are going to start on Ubuntu, right? That is the number one distro out there, but there is no rolling release version of this. And I think that for the new crowd of people coming into Linux, we have to realize they're not going to be the same. The expectations are not the same that they're just coming to Linux to run it on their 10 year old laptop. They're coming to Linux because it's a better operating system, yeah. and it should have the state of the art support. That's already the work's already been done in the kernel, but people can't release it, and they're going to have to spend months learning Linux before they get to the point with oh, there's a kernel, and the whole time I can just sit there and use UKUU and try to upgrade it. You know, I think there's some there's a fix here in between that needs to happen, and that's what I want to see with Linux. Is we have to embrace the fact. That we're no longer the past, we're the future. And as the future, we need to support the latest and greatest stuff immediately like other operating systems do.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. And I also uh, understand why people would disagree with that because of the stability aspects of the system. Mm-hmm. And I hope that the hardware enablement stack, if that does what I I want it to do and what I hope it does, we will find out in like a month or two whether it does or not. Um, But if that does, and you can pull in the stuff from like 1904 into 1804, I think that that would become like prove a solution to the issue. So maybe we'll even get to see what you want to happen, happen, you know, fairly soon. So I I hope Mm. that that's the case.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So before we get on to the next question, we all know what Ryan's like with new kit. So you cannot say I'll pick them all. Darn it. Okay. So you're given a chance to get a brand new laptop of your choice. Your your options include Dell, System76, Purism or Lenovo. Which one do you choose and why? And I can't
2: say all of the above. Funny enough, I've owned every single one of these, but Purism. Uh, So I'm going to pick Purism because I love what this team is doing here recently. they, I love the idea of having hardware switches from a privacy standpoint that actually turn off the electrical connection to your webcam. I love the idea, or or to your microphone for that matter, I love the idea of their, their integration work that they're doing eventually between the phone when they release their new phone. Right. And the laptop, uh, I would like to get my hands on it to see how their hardware stacks up against the rest of these that I have owned. I absolutely love my Dell XPS. I think the Infinity Bezel is the greatest invention ever. Lenovo has always seemed to have had fantastic uh, support for Linux, and Noah was showing me his recent Lenovo, and he held it up with, like, two fingers it was so light, and I was pretty jealous over that. So I haven't had the latest and greatest Lenovo yet, but uh, I've also had the System76, and I've enjoyed their hardware tremendously as well as much as the passion and, and support that they've had for open source and the community and the work they do on Pop! OS, et cetera. So they're all great choices. At the end of the day, the only one I haven't owned is Purism, and so that's the one I would go with. Makes sense.
3: I think that if Purism were to upgrade their hardware to a newer line, that it would be a fantastic option when you combine with all the other things. That's the only yeah. thing that I'm slightly hesitant about. But I think the the great point about the hard, the, the hardware uh, disconnection yeah. stuff, like just to being able to disable the microphone so you don't have to worry about, you know, like there's a lot of times where you'll see people uh, at tech conferences and stuff have like tape on their cameras because they don't want to like just in case they don't want to yeah. have that be available. Whereas in the purism, you could just turn it off and where it has no ability to, you don't have to put a tape on it because you don't have to worry about it Did, working because it's not yeah. going to work. Have out.
1: you, have you guys seen what Lenovo's doing now? They've got this, um, it's uh, they call it the the i don't know camera slider or whatever but yeah. it literally it actually covers the the uh it actually that's, covers that's the idea. the machine nice. there
0: the webcam yeah i like it
2: you mm. can also buy the sticker version of that to put on laptops that slides and it sticks on your screen and you can slide it back and forth and yeah i've,
1: I've that's what i used on my last computer the the issue i have with that is it raises the bezel up a little bit so the laptop yeah. never actually fully closes right
2: yeah mm-hmm. yep. Yeah
1: a little frustrating Ryan what are a couple of the things that you hope that you can really accomplish here on destination Linux all of us go into content production because we are passionate about whatever it is we're talking about and frankly because you kind of have to have a little bit of an ego to do what we do (laughs) Uh, so with those things aside though there's got to be some underlying motivation for you what is it
2: everything from when I started the channel to now was to me about bringing back the passion for learning I find found so many people seem to learn a skill, especially as and we'll get into my profession later, but somebody who's managed people for most of his life, um, that people will learn a skill and then stop they're like oh i do this thing really well and then they stop learning and that's the thing they learn and unfortunately that thing eventually comes out of style or isn't needed in the workforce anymore and now they find themselves out of a job and haven't learned anything new because they only have that one skill it's it's like the education seems to stop after school and so i wanted to bring back the passion for learning and linux offers so much opportunity It is literally endless. I have not found the end of this tunnel. I don't even think I've barely made it off the starting line in Linux. I also want people, I wanna bring confidence to the Linux community. Part of the reason I think people are defensive about Linux and come across as trolling uh, is they've spent so much time having to defend their use of Linux. Like it probably wasn't cool or a popular thing to do in school or with your friends. And so today, you do not have anything to be defensive about in Linux. It stands on its own 100%. If you take any Windows 10 user or Mac user and stick it beside, me and my computer the beast the laptops the all the equipment that i have linux wins hands down there's nothing to defend anymore people control it all they want but they're just plain wrong
3: so ryan what do you do uh, professionally like for example we've we've heard from noah that you might be doing some kind of clandestine <laughs> project or uh, working for the nsa or uh, but i I, th- I think that it might be more CII cia related or maybe like
2: well, if I tell you, I'll have to kill you all. So I probably shouldn't say. Okay, that. so
3: moving on to the next topic.
2: <laughs> it, it's, it's not as exciting as it may sound, but the honest answer is I am, and I told Noah this at the beginning of the show. I have more, I'm more NDA'd, than, I fill out more NDA documents than I do uh, tax forms at the end of the year. So I generally do not talk about too much what I do professionally. Is that
1: typical industry? for people that work at the NSA or is that, is, are you, <laughs> are, is the, your position that secret?
2: Uh, I work in telecom and uh, I've been in the telecom industry now for 18 plus years. I started in telecom when I was 17. I was one of the youngest employees ever hired at a corporation of, you know, 30, tens of thousands of individuals that work there. And uh, one of the first things that I did to get noticed was wrote macros to do the work that um, I was hired as a order manager to type in orders for people. And when I first got hired, our goal was to do 20 a day. And I thought, well, this is stupid. Uh, why am I typing the same information over and over and over <laughs> again <laughs> from my dad's small business? And we wrote software and we sold and built computers, but my dad sold his business at that point. So I had to find another job. I was 17, went and applied, got this job and wrote macros, key all the orders for me. Didn't know I was allowed to do it. So when I got called into the office, I was very scared of my manager saying, hey, uh, our highest here who's been here for six years did 26 orders this week. Uh, you just did 400. What are you doing? <laughs> and so this was, my, this was my beginning of my career. So I've been there ever since and worked in a bunch of different jobs. Right now, I, the best way to describe what I do is I'm mostly always in leadership position of managing others. Um, but through my success of turning around uh, groups that are underperforming, I have what you would call like a special uh, strike force team that comes in and works on projects that are either failing for the company or that the company needs to get off, up and running in a big way very fast. So I have web designers on my team. I have a database and SQL coders on my team. Extremely, extraordinarily advanced coders that are capable of doing amazing things. I have database administrators on my team, special analysts and um, project and program managers that I manage across the United States. And they will basically go in and we take on big projects for the company to get things done. So it's a ton of fun. And I get to work from home, which is amazing and manage from home, which is a challenge at times, but (laughs) I have... It's the greatest team ever of people that uh, I say um, you can't teach people what your mama was supposed to teach you. Good work ethic and passion for your job. And I work with a bunch of people like that.
1: Can I just say that I find it a little disingenuous. I'm not like I'm not trying to beat up on you, but I find it a little Mm -hmm. disingenuous to call the NSA a telecom. Like I understand (laughs) just because they snoop in everybody's telecom business (laughs) doesn't make them telecom i in my personal humble opinion but you know what you do you
2: that man moving behind you in the black suit just ignore him <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's one of your team
2: <laughs> yeah exactly
0: so ryan um apart from outing filthy dual booters and <laughs> disappearing people and sending demanding emails to google to say give me all this data you've collected what other projects are you a part of
2: um well there are a lot of different projects that i try to get myself involved in um you know i have of course my local lug that i want to promote the linux and coffee group out there Um, i do offer a lot of and this is one thing i want to promote financial support to a lot of different programs and also open source projects out there period so that is something that i you know try to do on a very regular basis, and even tried to kick something off, which was uh, basically Friday thank yous to any open source project, where you just tweet out all of your donations that you make to the various projects, if you can make them. So I think financial support's important. I do a lot of tech support. A lot of times, and I don't know if I'm going to keep doing this, but I do it under pseudonyms in different Linux forums and things like that. Not necessarily as DOSGeek because I really don't want people to take my advice just because I'm on Destination Linux or because I do the channel. Um, I just, you know, the best advice in that forum want people to take. But I do spend a lot of time on those forums offering tech support and helping people out with their computers. Um, I've also do that a lot in my community period, which is a great opportunity to talk about Linux. So I was talking earlier uh, with you guys in the show about doing a photo recovery for an individual who had lost uh, photos of their children and things like that. Those are great opportunities, things I do for free to help people um, you know, in a time of need where everybody else has failed them and they've already spent thousands of dollars uh, to not only talk about, hey, it's amazing that Linux can do this, um, but also, you know, be able to help people out in the community, and then of course my YouTube channel that I do helping other creators out there. Sometimes I get to help with no our uh, Michael's podcast, and even I was showed up on Noah's podcast, which was awesome recently. That was fun. Yes, that, that was, was fun. fun.
1: You know, I, I you bailed me out of a tight spot because uh, I, we we had to cover the Google Stadia stuff uh, because it was it was breaking news and it was something that was interesting. And my producer, when we were talking about, it, I said, "Yeah, I got to go prep all the stuff," and he looks at me and he goes you can't go talk about Stadia by yourself. I'm like, why? And he's like, because you're an idiot. <laughs> you can't talk, you can't talk about he's like, you must know somebody. Get that Ryan guy from Destination Linux. He's a gaming expert. Get him on there and have him talk about it. And segment turned out absolutely outstanding. I've gotten nonstop positive feedback about uh, when you and Ryan are going to do another show. And I'm like, we do every That's single awesome. Sunday.
2: Yeah. So just show up. I love it. No, it was a highlight To A lot of these things are just, I, I don't feel like I uh, belong because I'm so new to Linux and I don't know enough, but uh, Destination Linux, you know, being invited on this. First of all, being on part of Ask Noah's show, which your show was a big part of my coming into Linux, some of your prior podcasts that you did like the last uh, Action sh- Linux action show. And that was a huge part of me getting into Linux to begin with a part of my education, because when I want to learn something, I I hit it from all ends. That's how my brain learns. So I do something audio based, podcasting, audio books. I read books, then I'll generally take courses on it and then I do it. So when I decide I'm going to learn something, I envelop myself in it. So to be a part and work with people that got me into learning Linux to begin with, it's just an amazing experience. So helping with these shows now is awesome as well. And I get to write the show, uh, the articles for the show every single week and I get to help Michael out with his podcast, which is awesome as well. And get to learn things about how his, how he does um, work and how he thinks about articles and how he can ridiculously, I told him about this this week, learn things at a level zero level all the time. Like he, he can take an article and just, you know, for me, I'm getting the highlights and I have the high to middle level of understanding, but he's always at that, you know, just from the ground up knowledge that he can take things in. So learning from you guys is also a huge thing that I I love, but uh, I try to get involved in a little bit of everything, as you can tell.
0: Mm -hmm. Because if I was to do a show like that, it would have to be this year in Linux, because that's how long (laughs) it would take me to learn it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: Part of that is because he's got his finger so close on the pulse of everything that happens in the Linux community that when he reads an article, and correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, you're not learning it for the first time. You're more updating yourself based on everything, you know, adding to a, an already existing plethora of knowledge.
3: Yeah, that's for the most part. When, I, when I'm looking at researching different topics, it's more of like reminding me about what's, do, what's new in this particular software compared to things that I already know. And also, uh, you know, there's sometimes if it's brand new, I still want to dive deep, but then they'll start talking about different, um, you know, initialisms or acronyms based on certain things about a particular project. And they relate to other projects that I've already dealt with. So it's a lot easier for me to transition to them. And, uh, you know, also because I go with I pay attention with news for Linux for so long that this stuff kind of just comes naturally now. So uh, that's why the show has, you know, dozens of topics every week, even though it sounds like it's a lot of work and it is. I yeah. do want to thank Ryan for helping me out every once in a while because he'll, he'll even if he isn't like going as deep as I am in the topics, he'll give me the, the information that helps me go to it faster. like for example, we did um, this week in Linux last week on Sunday because I couldn't do it on Saturday like I usually do. And within nine minutes of starting the the, the podcast stream, uh, solace announced Solus four and i had no time whatsoever to <laughs> actually research anything and to find it out and then ryan helped me out by getting all the information i needed to like the all the, the, the like important details and then i would just use the stuff that i already knew about Solus and because already uh, we had uh josh strobel come on the show we we talked to him about that and i just you know correlated everything that i had so i was able to do a segment about a topic on the fly within like with no like uh time uh, research or you know prep time period but thanks to Ryan for helping it out so like there's all those different levels of it is just it's a great experience doing these kinds of things and uh so you know you I'm I'm glad you're able to help I mean I'm glad you learned something from doing the show with me or helping me do the show because uh I also am very happy that you're willing to help me do the show
2: at times so. <laughs> oh, that's a blast I love it
1: what uh, what are some of the other contributions you've made to the Linux community outside of podcasting? For example, financial code or uh, support for testing, or maybe you know designing a security enhanced Linux system called SE Linux. <laughs> I,
2: um, I I do have some code out there on GitHub, so I do contribute some scripts for installation scripts, uh, audio scripts um, out there to fix for some of the. I wouldn't say pro equipment but more high-end consumer audio equipment out there Um, I so I do try to contribute what coding knowledge I have uh, to help out and of course all of that is open sourced out there so anybody can take it and fork it and make it really cool if they want Um, I obviously talked about the financial support that I like to do for all of the distros that I utilize so the whole free thing between software um, is great and that helps you know, stop the digital divide of people who can't afford video editing software yet want to create video content. You know, Linux is amazing for that, but at the point you start making money, I feel like you need to give back to the community. So financial support being very important uh, and give back to these projects, but also do testing, beta testing for um, different products out there. So this could be different distros. I'll get uh, reached out to from the developers or I'll volunteer to test them out on the latest and greatest equipment that I have, for instance. Or it could be something like testing out the new Mate on the Raspberry Pi version of Mate, which is one of the latest ones that I've helped out with, which I absolutely love because I get to work with he who shall not be named, but I really love that guy. And, uh, you know, give him some feedback on uh, along with the rest of the community on things we like and things that need to be improved.
3: So tell us one thing uh, people probably don't know about you.
2: I think one of the most interesting things about my um, career is that i started managing a business at 13 years old and became a little bit of a phenom in my community where i grew up so my dad had this shop as i mentioned but it wasn't always successful and noah can appreciate this because he grew up your own business from the ground up Uh, my dad started his business in his home and i remember waking up in the middle of the night with tums bottles all over the floor as he was working on trying to make this thing happen he loved writing software he did not really wasn't into the hardware side as much he want, he wrote software for government organizations for h and r for all of these different organizations throughout his life but at this point we didn't have a lot of money and he was trying to grow this thing and my mom was supporting him as a nurse and she was paying the bills and he was trying to get this thing off the ground And when it finally did get off the ground, it was a slow roll. People see the success stories and they think, oh, that person just started out successful. Well, no, it took tons of sacrifice from my mom, from the family, everything else. One of those things that I sacrificed was school. Uh, I did very well in school, but at this point, my dad needed somebody to run the shop. I was 13 years old and we were selling computers out the shop, but he needed to go sell software because that's where the money was. So I would go to school for, there was a program in school where if your parents, like it was usually used for farms and things like that, had a particular job where they needed their kids to be there to help, you would only go to four hours of school and then you could go. So I would go to four hours of school and start and open my dad's shop and then I would sell computers out of it. What was kind of cool is, It became a little bit of a phenomenon in the local area to go see the 13 year old sell you a computer because back then it wasn't as usual as it is today for kids to be into computers, even know what they are. So I built them and I would sell them out in the front and got a lot of management and business experience that way. And it's just a really cool time for me to look back on all the different lessons, all the stupid mistakes that I made of a 13 year old trying to run a business. Yeah, That's pretty awesome
0: so we hope this segment helps you to get to know the hosts of the show a little better so thank you ryan for all of the work you do within the linux community and for the work you do putting together the documents and the show notes for this show each and every week Our heartfelt thanks thank you let's
1: move on to some distro news solus 4 fortitude has been a release the solus team has announced the immediate release of solus now, this release promises a brand-new Budgie experience as well as updates to their default applications. Theming and hardware enablement, some specific improvements include kernel 4.20.16, which offers support for a wide range of AMD, AMD GPUs and improved support for Intel Coffee Lake and Ice Lake CPUs, along with additional hardware support. The software center has some, uh, some refinements and fixes for the planned rewrite. Budgie 10.5 is... Uh, Out of the box has the Nor GTK theme. Additionally, they have improvements to the budgie menu, such as a caffeine mode applet, an icon task list, an applet with an improved app detection for grouping, along with Raven widget and notification center enhancements. Finally, the team has made improvements to GNOME, Mate and the Plasma desktop flavors. The Solus 4 has tweaks for improvements under the hood, so head over to the Solus website and check them all out for yourself. It's always great to see the Solus team uh, being outlined for the year, coming for, to fruition. Solus continues to be a already fantastic uh, distribution, and they continue to make it better with every single release. So, huge congratulations to Josh and the entire team um, at Solus for another product. Well, well done. Really great distro, in my humble opinion, if you're just getting inter- interested in Linux and you want a distro that's going to hold your hand from start to completion, Solus is definitely something you have to check out. Or the other place that I've seen it work very, very well is inside of businesses that have very uh, specific use cases but need absolute rock solid reliability. Solus fits very well there as well. Interesting.
3: Mm-hmm. And also the the new theming is actually pretty nice. Uh, the the uh, Plata Noir I have no idea. That's how you say it. I'm just going to guess. Yeah,
2: I just skipped over the plot part. The, the, like, mm. the way you said it, Michael, it sounded legit. You kind of added that little French twang to it. And, yeah, and it I works. mean, noir. I think it's
3: something like that, but I don't know if it's true.
2: <laughs> yeah. So play a noir, don't have the same ring.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we're going to call it the PNGTK theme.
3: that will work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually really yeah. nice. And I do like the fact that they're uh, improving Budgie. And uh, they doing a lot of work for the the budgie uh, interface, so that that it's really cool to see the the work that's doing. And it's kind of interesting because if you um, if you were looking at the previous version of three point nine nine nine, whatever the actual amount of nines there were, um, they that the latest one right before the four is very similar because they're doing a rolling release structure. Uh, but it's also worth noting that the an uh, ISO refresh is very important because if you're you a distro developer and you're doing like a rolling re- release, you need to update your ISOs because people shouldn't start with like super old versions and then mm. trying to upgrade the entire system because it, it just takes so much more time to do it than with having like an ISO refresh like once a month or something. So it's always great to see uh, rolling releases like this get up to date like that. So, um, you know, congratulations to Solus for creating this uh, brand new um you know, solid distro releases.
2: I think the most exciting thing for me for Solus and the only reason I haven't moved to it yet, although a lot of people in our telegram are huge fans of Solus and have moved to it already and love it. But the, the package management work is the package manager is just not my favorite thing. Yeah. It's, it's just- also
3: limited the amount of packages it has because of that package manager. Cause it's very, it's so unique that they can't benefit from the previous packages. They have to create their own for everything. So um, like, while like, Technically speaking, that's really cool. They're doing a lot of work that's great. There is some limitations about the way the package manager works and also the amount
2: of applications they have available. And I think the most exciting thing about that point for, for us being a hang-up is that they are working on changing that this issue. You know, I don't know exactly what they're going to do or how it's going to work, but they are rebuilding that package management system. Mm-hmm. That was in their... Um, you know what they what they were saying they were going to do for the year that they laid out their entire plans for, and that to me I cannot wait. And I saw in here that there's some of the improvements that are, they are making are gearing up towards that rebuild of the package management system. So I'm very excited to see that because again, this is a rolling distribution, which is one of the things I love, um, being on latest tech and things like that. But also that one thing has been the hang up for me for Solus for a long time, and I think a lot of people share that. Not that it's not great still, but that's the one hangup I have, and and being able to see what they come up with here in the rewrite of their package management system is just going to be awesome.
3: Yeah, and they're Mm. also doing all the integration with the various universal formats and stuff. It's really cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think Noah made a, a very good point in regard to the stability side of it, because one of the things that that interests me is that they've made these huge raft of changes and and the actual change log is actually quite a long read. Install it, put your software on, it works. Yeah, No ifs, no buts, no hiccups, no messing about. So even if you are coming from having had your computer system on 3.999 and you've been upgrading it, Is there really a need to do it? Well, yeah, because every now and again, it's nice to put on a fresh install. And one of the things that always worries me when I do my distro testing and my distro hopping was it used to work. Have they broken it trying to fix something else? And I've not yet had a situation where any Solus release has come out and I've gone, oh, that don't work now. Well, that's no good. (laughs) Solus 4 installed it, it works. It's great.
2: Yep.
3: Another great release is Mate 1.22 is out, and after a year of development, they've released this latest version, which comes with a lot of bug fixes and patches and all kinds of new uh, shiny new features as well. So uh, first of all, they have support for the Mate panel to be available in, in the Wayland protocol, so you can now use it inside of Wayland rather than X. Uh, improved monitor support control in the dis- new display applet, which they basically like rewrote that whole thing to make it work with the the better support for the monitors. And they've also um, has a-, a new update for Wanda the fish now works properly on HD uh, high DPI displays, which of course Zeb is thrilled about because the fish is still pixelated.
2: You're welcome, Zeb.
3: So, and also the new programs have been ported to Python three, including Eye of Mate. Uh, the uh, Python Kaja plugin libraries and the Mate menus library. Uh, so, this is a lot of stuff that, that's coming out. Uh, Ryan, what do you think about the latest version?
2: It's it's interesting. I haven't tried out the latest version of Mate yet, but I love seeing the changes that they're making here. I think we've all talked about what is the desktop environment. You would put a new user of Linux on and experienced Linux users, of course. Sometimes when we say this is what I put a new user on, it almost leads people to believe, well, that's all it's good for. Well, that's not the case. Obviously, it was good for a new user. It'd be good for your the best coder in the planet potentially as well. But this does mate is one of those that whether you're brand new or you're super experienced, there's a lot to love in it. And I think most of us would at least mate would be in our top five, if not the desktop environment, we would say put a new user in. Um, It's the one that I usually, when I'm installing Linux as uh, on somebody's machine, generally I'll do it in a dual boot setup so that they can still have their precious windows until they realize how crappy it is. And um (laughs) So I, I usually use a MATE-based distribution because it's just, it, to me, it's so familiar from anybody coming from another OS. It's easy to find things, and it's very stable. I love the work that they're doing here. Um, I love any work that I'm seeing in two areas, Wayland support and high DPI, because I think those are two things that have traditionally been kind of weak in Linux Um, so Wayland support I think is important, but I don't want to see it necessarily default because it'll break too many people's machines. But if Wayland is the future and everybody's saying it is, we need to push it. And if the only holdout, one of the major holdouts is the NVIDIA people welcome to Team Red. Uh, So I love that they're adding more Wayland support (laughs) in there. And uh, the high DPI thing is a big, important piece because you're seeing basically 1920 by 1080 monitors really are, they're all on fire sales constantly now and the everybody's clearing their stock to get ready for at least having um 2k or 4k monitors and the prices are dropping tremendously on them that's where most people are that's the type of monitor most people are going to have so this high dpi support is an incredibly important thing for um, linux to be ready to take on fully and zeb you have a you have a 4k monitor how is linux support of uh 4k monitors these days
0: I'll be honest with you, it's not great. Um, there are some distributions and desktops that get it right. Probably one of the best ones out there for, at the moment is, oh, here we go, Michael's gonna have a big grin, KDE. <laughs> um, that works That works really well. Um, apart from a minor bug I have with moving windows around, Cinnamon um, also works really well now I was a little bit disappointed with the gnome 3.22 support that came out because their new HIDPI is only for Wayland mm. so can't necessarily use it when you're on team green but anybody who has got a DPI window out there I now just go to the accessibility options and choose a large font yeah. which then automatically makes the Windows borders that bigger to accommodate the large font And then I go into the font itself and I put the DPI up to 132 while I'm waiting for Linux to catch up and give proper Mm. 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 support to HIDPI. When this entire process, and I just got done struggling through
1: this myself because when I was picking up my next laptop, I actually looked at going with a 2K display or a 1080p and I have a good friend of mine has a 2K version, and so we installed Ubuntu uh, on it, and we we're playing with it for a little bit, and uh, no, it's just not there. The, the, the high DPI to be successful under Linux cannot require, it has to be from the time that you boot up, everything, and I mean everything, has to just work 100% of the time. There can't be, well, you gotta go into this place and change the font, and then you gotta go change this thing, and then you gotta do that, and then even after you change all of those things, like 99% of things will work, but there'll be this one random app that you have that was not really, you know, that's not supported anymore or it was it really, all of that stuff has to be handled somehow. Uh, and until we get there, high DPI is going to continue to be kind of a joke on Linux. And when I look at that, and and I'm a pretty dedicated Linux user, and when I feel that way, I feel like that's going to be 10 times more prolific to the person that just buys a 4K system or 2k system and goes to install linux and goes what is going on here you know i I feel like that's something we have to address
3: and i also Mm. want to point out to something else that we could address is that um, what is the point of 2k and 4k if you're going to increase the zoom of everything so that it looks now like 1080p just get 1080p or better yet, 1440p, which still doesn't have to do the rig- ridiculous scaling, but also has right. more pixels to. Even more but real we state. just
1: pixel double. We pixel double everything. Well, why do you need two of them? They're both going to show the same thing.
0: Mm. but the thing is, though, if you've never used a 4K monitor, you don't. You're saying, oh, but everybody double pixels it, and you might as well get a 1440. No, because I've got a 1440 monitor in front of me, and I, I deliberately scale it up to um, 4K even when i then have to go and tweak and make things a little bit bigger so that they're, they're, they're that little bit more readable i can still get twice as much on my screen as you can on a 1080p i can have three a4 documents side by side on my screen which i couldn't have on 1080p not without placing them on the monitor and then going into the word application or into the you know the word processing application right. and then using my control mouse and and scroll and make the font smaller in the application. I don't have to do that with 4K. I can just place all my stuff. And everybody's saying that Linux can't do it. Windows isn't that great either. No, no, it's not. You get 120, 150, 175, or 200. Well, sometimes you want a bit in between. The only thing that Windows will have for it is you're not trying to get snaps to work or you're not trying to get app images to work because there are, and, and probably one of the biggest... Um, bad boys out there is telegram yeah you Mm -hmm. can go in and you can set the settings to 125 percent but it doesn't comply with the rest of the systems will give me a large title bar and increase your font slightly it does its own thing and there are too many applications out there that still do their own thing don't comply with what the desktop is talking about and that's why i like kde so much i think it's the only desktop out there at the moment that can have GTK and QT apps out there looking pretty good out of the box. Wow. Because I think they've done all of that work in the background to make sure that everything just cohesively works together.
2: Well, there you go, Michael. You've converted everybody to the cult of KDE. Congratulations, your work here is done.
1: So about that mate, 122 release.
3: Right, (laughs) so after that tangent, uh... All the 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 Mate is still available if you want to, and other di- distribu in some distributions right now. You can go to uh, get one point twenty two in Arch and OpenSUSE and some other ones. Uh, so if you want to find out more, we'll have a link to the latest release for Mate one point twenty two in the show notes.
2: So in our hardware news, there was something interesting that popped up. Nvidia bought Melanox. So I wanted to bring this up to the group because uh, Nvidia spent a lot of money here. Uh, buying this company. This acquisition was $6.9 billion, which I think we hear some of these big numbers so much that we really don't stop to think about how much money that... Right.
3: For perspective, that is six Instagrams.
2: Wow. six! They bought six Instagrams worth of a company. Right Now, Mellanox, what's interesting here is Mellanox describes itself as a leading supplier of end-to-end Ethernet and infinite band Intelligent interconnect solutions and services for servers storage and hyper converged infrastructure. So that's what they describe What they do NVIDIA wasn't the only one looking to buy this company by the way They bid up so high because they were trying to keep it from the likes of companies like Intel who were also bidding to get this company So I guess it's pretty cool to outbid Intel on something because I think that would be pretty hard to accomplish but NVIDIA is pretty big Um, the acquisition gives NVIDIA a much more diverse portfolio in areas such as networking and cloud computing so I'm hoping that if NVIDIA is getting more into cloud computing and we know without a shadow of a doubt the winning operating system for cloud computing is Linux does this mean NVIDIA is going to show more support in more interest in Linux in the future here. And was this a good move from NVIDIA to get into cloud computing or are they just scared the GPU market slipping away from them?
1: I think it's a good move for them and I think it will result in in capital for them. I'm not sure it necessarily helps us on the desktop, right? I feel Mm -hmm. like these companies tend to do what's in their best interest financially and I'm not knocking them for that, that's why they go into business, good on them, but the idea that because they're going to make huge investments in cloud computing means that they're going to support things on the desktop i don't think necessarily translates look at google drive for example all of google's data centers google drive itself is completely run on linux and yet we still don't have a drive an official drive client for Mm -hmm. linux right and the same could be said about microsoft look at how many microsoft products run entirely on linux on the back end and still don't have a front-end version for linux so i I feel like that's there's not necessarily a one-to-one translation there. Mm-hmm. Good
0: point.
2: So, Michael, what do you think about this? Oh, never mind. You're on Team Red. Uh, Zeb, what do you think about NVIDIA buying uh, Mellanox here? Is this a big win for them?
0: Um, I think it's just the, the people at the top of NVIDIA, as you quite rightly said, realizing that maybe with Intel coming along next year as well, with M- a- AMD making leaps and bounds, that their corner of the gaming market with their NVIDIA cards isn't maybe as big as and profitable as it used to be. So let's buy into another area of the industry. We've got the skill set. We've got, the, skillset, we've got the, the, the the clever technical people who do all of these fantastic ray tracing stuff. So it's just another feather in their bow. And I think Noah's 100% right. I don't think it'll have any effect on on the desktop market whatsoever if nvidia were going to help linux they would have done it years ago there you go so i don't know what's wrong with ryan this week but it's (laughs) another team green piece of information yeah so nvidia have now produced an affordable developer arm based module for just 99 dollars, and they've called it the jetson nano or nano now, whilst it's not as cheap as other offerings like a Raspberry Pi, the device is packed with a lot of oomph for the pricing. It comes with an, an NVIDIA Maxwell 128 NVIDIA CUDA Core GPU, a quad-core ARM Cortex-A57. Sing to me. Um, say again?
2: <laughs> You're singing to me here. Keep going.
0: Keep singing, yeah, yeah. Um, it's got a weird form factor, and I don't know why these people keep putting things in millimetres because I understand feet and inches, so I'll have to convert that in a minute. Um, it's got four gigabyte of LD or LP DDR4 memory, a 16 gigabyte, gigabyte EMMC ROM, I guess, four USB ports, HDMI, Ethernet, camera connectors, micro SD. So I can read all these facts and figures all day long, um, and but I don't... I bought a Raspberry Pi and I ended up giving it away to somebody who I knew would use it more. So this isn't really my area of expertise. But again, it's it's something that I can see a lot of hobbyists wanting to get involved in. Because correct me if I'm wrong, Noah, is not that NVIDIA Maxwell 128 NVIDIA CUDA Core GPU part of the handheld device, the gaming device? I'm not sure if it's part of the handheld device. I think what they're
1: aiming for is essentially a lot of AI stuff, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's the AI stuff and then there's the, well, this is kind of AI stuff too, but the robotics section of this, because you have all of the connections here to make full rope. In fact, they sell a kit that this this they have a separate development kit to turn this little device into a robot. Uh, With the cameras and everything else on it, so this is just—it's not really a competitor to the Raspberry Pi, although that's Mm -hmm. the—I utilize that example just to say it's—it's like that. You get this board, same market, yeah, same market. It's got all of this really impressive technology on it for the price, ninety-nine dollars for all of this, and you could really have a lot of fun. I think doing projects on this tool. And I think what gives it its biggest advantage is the amount uh, is the fact that, of course, you get this GPU on here, this higher end GPU, uh, which can do far more complex mathematics and things out there than your standard, say, Raspberry Pi Zero out there, which you're going to have a little bit more of a struggle on. Not that they both don't have their place in separate uh, options, but you still have that 40 pin GPIO header, which is where you can start adding in different things, you know, to this device. Uh, to do with it what you will but i just love seeing nvidia out there doing things in the open source community uh more because this little box runs a variation of ubuntu known as linux for tegra as well so i'm hoping all of their investment in these various little projects continues to pique their interest and we get some uh, more things out of them in the future as far as open source from them directly uh, but mm. this is something I probably will own and I imagine Noah will have one whether he says yes or not. No, no I
1: say yes. I don't even have to think mm. about it. In fact, yeah. I, when when I went to talk about this on, on, on my show on Tuesday, I actually went to see if I could buy one. Uh, yeah. You know, 99 mm. bucks for the amount of power that you're getting. And uh, Zeb, I guess I have to kind of give you a hard time because I feel like you made a mistake getting getting rid of the Raspberry Pi. The thing about the Raspberry Pi and why this and no other machine is a competitor to it is because – They're so cheap and so ubiquitous that you can do just about anything with them, so it's a great trial computer. Even if you move whatever it is it's doing off to something else, it's a great thing to throw on there and try something. That sign that exists behind Ryan would never exist if it would have cost him $300 to try that sign, even if he was willing to spend $300 on the sign because he wouldn't have known that it works. The fact that he can throw it on a $35 computer makes it work, And, and what NVIDIA is doing here is they're extending that same mythology or that same methodology, rather, to uh, a slightly higher system, right? Somebody mm. who wants to play with AI. I don't know anything about AI, but you better believe if I could spend ninety-nine bucks and start playing with it, I would do that today. Exactly,
3: yeah, yeah. and also yeah. the power of like oh. having four times as much RAM as the Pi. I mean, like the just the amount of power it has for that price is ridiculous. So mm, even absolutely. if it is like much more expensive than the Pi, it still is a very like for what it the amount of hardware it gives you, it's still like a reasonably priced thing.
0: Yeah, and I've actually just looked on a ruler and that 70 millimeters is not even three inches. This yeah. thing is tiny.
2: Yeah, and, and you could see that they are using the quad core ARM Cortex CPU there, and then they're using that LP DDR 4 that's low power DDR4 RAM. All of these form factors here are to offer you the ability to run this on almost utilizing no electricity at all right it's just very very low powered device which is something you get out of the Raspberry Pi and that's important with these type of tools because if there's something that you're leaving always plugged in aka the sign you don't want it to be a massive power drain on top of everything else Mm -hmm. Um, so you're getting a lot of power but they also took the time to look through all of these options to make sure that they are low power consuming but you still get the maximum performance out of the selection of hardware here. And did I mention it runs Linux uh, by default? That's pretty cool. Firefox
1: 66 has been released. Firefox has a new version of its web browser that was released this week, and it comes with some more privacy and feature improvements. Some of the features of this release include Firefox preventing websites from automatically playing sound. Now I have to tell you, as a person who sleeps next to his wife with his laptop on all the time, the fastest way to get me to never ever come to your site again is to automatically start playing some ridiculous sound or video. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much to Mozilla for having the built-in blocking for the most annoying thing a web web developer ever implement into their website. They also have improved for the search experiment. (laughs) The search experiment, it's a success. We can find stuff on the (laughs) internet. Yay! An improvement for the search experience by being able to perform searches on tabs that you have open, uh, easier search in private windows via a redesigned tab. Now that's important because one of the things that you'll hear from Chrome users is that tab management is so much superior in Chrome as it is to Firefox. And so, if you have hundreds or even thousands of tabs open, sorting through them can be very difficult. So it's nice to see that Mozilla is kind of catching up in that regard. You also I have, have some smoother. With that sh-
3: but okay, I love also, it. I love it.
1: Also, 100%. let's talk about it. also.
2: I have like, I always attention. have hundreds of tabs or stuff. Thousands in my case, thousands. Yeah. Like, tens of thousands. And,
1: you, and you're able to and you're able to sort through that stuff, okay?
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That, only in Chrome though. It's kind of like the iPhone where, you know, somebody told me, we don't like have you guys, no, I'm I confused. Like what is are, what about I feel like you Chrome guys um, are,
1: are, 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 like, uh, are making fun of the idea, but I'm not kidding. They there are entire ecosystems for tab management under Chrome. And so like Rakai is huge into this, right? I mean, he's, I'm not exaggerating. He's got thousands of tabs open and he he has like, they're in groups or they're in their, they have hierarchy and all sorts of crazy. What are they doing
2: this for? I can't even think of a commercial application it's, it's for why you actually have thousands. It's of- what kind
3: of supercomputer super do you have to have that many tabs in Chrome? It's
1: its essentially like it, for him, I think it's a function of he never, like it's a different way to go to a website. Like you, you go to the tab rather than using bookmarks or something, I don't know. But I think like, it's like uh, a version of
2: hoarding but on the internet yeah,
1: it is it is a version of hoarding it's a beta and i tell them all the time like we have jokes about it i say tabs are not for persistent data storage that's not what they were invented for but uh but no i mean I, I do think like if you don't do stuff like that then i guess searching for tabs is kind of ridiculous because like right now i've got one two three four five i have eight tabs open between three computers right i don't need a search function i can just look right. yeah but there I'm, I'm just saying that there are people that have a lot of tabs open and i think that's where that search functionality could could uh
3: i mean if you just bookmark the things that would be more it would make more sense but i mean i, I don't get I what what i mean firefox does tabs management perfectly fine i don't understand what what makes chrome better with it because like with, especially with Firefox, you have the sidebar system where you can put all your tabs in a vertical sidebar where you can organize sure. them in groups and folder structure and hierarchies and systems and makes it really, and there's also a search box built into that sidebar thing. So I don't but really know it. Is so. that
0: a sidebar for open tabs or a sidebar for bookmarks?
3: All of it. You can, can you can make the sidebar do whatever you want. You can make it load ah, right. history, bookmarks, uh, custom, like Bitwarden has its own sidebar function. Um, you know, you can do, you can, and you also can use uh, keyboard shortcuts to get to each individual sidebar. So, if you wanted to go to the bookmarks, for example, it's just Control B, and it just opens the sidebar with the bookmarks. Or you want to do the history, Control H, or you want to do Bitwarden, which is admittedly really weird shortcut, uh, Alt Shift U, but that's what they chose. And um, and like you can just switch back and forth between whatever you want, and it takes very little time. Like I've had people say why don't you have a bookmarks uh, toolbar available? Like I don't have a toolbar for bookmarks because I just use the sidebar because the sidebar I can move within seconds, and it also contains everything I need in a much more clean way. So, I mean, the sidebar for Firefox is a much better experience.
2: Obviously, it's an issue, though, because they solved it here at the Search Experience. So while it's crazy mm-hmm. to us here, obviously there's a lot of people who yeah. hoard websites. I guess guess people just
3: don't understand the 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 data storage
1: inside of tabs. Yeah,
3: Yeah, I think it's a a lot of people who don't really utilize the sidebar as much as they could, I guess, maybe. But I think if if you don't, you should definitely try it out. There
1: you go. Well, some of the other things they've done is they have smoother scrolling experiences in this version. One of the performance enhancements is making extensions in the store. They're setting in Firefox database rather than individual JSON files. Now, that's something that I can personally appreciate because it seems like it's going to be much simpler to sync an experience from one Firefox mm-hmm. instance to another. Um, they also have some, uh, a couple other issues that they have uh, fixed where Firefox freezes when downloading files for Linux users, although I have to be honest with you, I've never once never had either. that happen. Never Like, either. ever. And I use Firefox exclusively for everything.
3: Same. I've never had that happen before either. Um, but I would say, like, w- we kind of talked about it a little bit, but this is – it doesn't seem like it's as important – even though you kind of we kind of talked about it, but not blocking videos from launching autoplay is the most like blocking yeah. the video from playing awesome. in general. I don't care. Like if they want to autoplay the video but not the audio, fine but having the audio play and then you have to randomly scroll down the website to find out where this stupid video pl- this audio yeah, I'll scroll is.
1: back up. And then well, yeah. that's not entirely that's true. That's not entirely true for a while. They've had uh, tab muting. So you could look up at the top. Yeah. And see yeah. yeah but
3: you can mute, you could tab you, you can mute your tab, but you still want to know where that is. And if you don't, you know, you have to reference to see sometimes you have to the video, like there's certain cases where uh, like ZDNet, for example, has a video on every article that they ever write. And it has nothing to do with that article. It is just a <laughs> yeah, random you video. close Those articles. Well, it's just a, it's just a video so that they can get like views on the video or whatever. But there is never a time where I've gone to an article on that website where the video actually relates to the let article me, it is on.
1: Here, let me help you. You go to a website, a video starts playing like that. Control a control C control W Open Sublime text control V. Now you can read your article. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, also Firefox has a, uh, like a, a reader mode, you can just activate that and that works great too. So it'll just turn off all that crap too. Let me
2: ask you you all something. We, we all here use Firefox. I think even Zeb, you use Firefox now, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, there's never been a more important time to push Firefox, even though we've always pushed it on this show for the most part, with the idea that Microsoft has now gone Chrome as well. And I just see this as one of the biggest dangers happening one of the biggest dangers happening on the internet is now this Chrome Chromium or Chrome back end is now taking over mm-hmm. every single browser. It's
3: becoming the output. new Internet Explorer, essentially where it take where it's the, the thing that mm. people say, this is best viewed and blah blah blah. Like no, it should be viewed and everything fine. Don't do and,
2: that and this is dangerous because you've given all of the control over to the back end run by a company that is well known for its you know, privacy invasive behaviors. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and being a part of the NSA, you'd know that, of course.
2: But uh, naturally, and and I thank them so much for it all the time because I could just get to know about everybody almost immediately. Um, you know, I, I think this is a very dangerous thing happening right now. And if you are utilizing Chrome because you're like, well, it seems like it's a little faster, this or that, think about, what you're giving up potentially by utilizing that. As people who support Linux, it kind of surprises me sometimes, some of the things that they run, like stock Android, for instance. When we sit here and talk about privacy and security and then walk around with something that has way more personal information on it and way more privacy invasion than Windows 10, give Windows 10 crap for it, but still carry around our stock Android device. These type of things confuse me. So I think the same thing from the browser perspective here as well is this idea now that every major computer is going to have a Chromium-based browser on it built in, like you said, Michael, to the Internet Explorer days, is ultra dangerous. Everybody needs to be out there, especially in the Linux community, supporting the one open source browser for privacy security have always backed it. Sometimes they make mistakes. Sometimes they do stupid things, but nowhere near what is being done outwardly out in the open from other companies and support Firefox.
3: And you also know that even if they do make a mistake, they do it. they, They have the best intentions. Even if they, when they mess up, they will try to fix it. You know, like they're not doing it because of some malicious privacy invasive thing like Google absolutely is. And mm-hmm. Firefox and Mozilla will also, an, like, announce services that were not even related to Firefox, but that benefit everybody, like the Firefox Send um, services they recently made. Like, that – I re- I actually just used that with a client recently because they were like, how do I get these files? And they were like uh, – I asked them how big are they – like, what the archive that you were sending me are because they had, like, a bunch of photos and videos they wanted to send. It was, like, 1.9 gigs of data. And it was like, okay, just – you could actually like cut it in half and send me one at a time. Um, but there's so many, like the, before the Firefox send really came out, that was getting that data sometimes would require me to just go to their office and get and bring take a USB drive with me and just pick it up there. <laughs> yeah. But now I just said, you just go here, create the file, upload it. They also were totally fine with just making an account there and they're just able to give me the file with one time, one link, and I didn't have to worry about it at all. It was so nice to not have to deal with that kind of mess. Um, But, like, there's... Firefox is... I mean, I agree with Ryan. Like, it's... They're... They do... They have mistakes sometimes, but they're also doing so much for the community that we should... You know, everybody should be uh, promoting them, you know, because they are promoting the community and they are focused on open source and making the best software available, you know, also respecting the freedom that everybody wants to... You know, everybody should want to have, so...
2: You know I've also heard people say, "Well, I don't support Chrome. I use Chromium." Michael, can you tell me why this isn't a great solution?
3: They think that because Chromium is open source that I don't know for some reason some people think that Chromium is not made by Google, but it totally <laughs> is. And they uh, they think that well Chrome is just a fork is just a proprietary fork of Chromium. It's like, "Well, yes, it is, but both of them are both made by Google." So, I don't really see what your point is there, but um, the the thing about chromium is because it uses the same engine. and if you're using a, a, a browser that is based on Chromium, you're still participating in that uh, consolidation of a web engine, which then creates this weird uh, situation where the the people who make the engine control the web. And that is a very dangerous thing because they can choose what you can and can't have in your web in, in the internet at that yep. point because if they if they choose, I don't like that particular type of software. I don't like that particular type of way of running an API. I don't they like just people having
2: it. ad blockers.
3: Yeah, they literally did that. And uh, they're still <laughs> going, planning on doing that where they're breaking away the ability to use ad blockers. Like the, the fact that that's even a thing that they are doing, and if they were the only engine, we would have no recourse whatsoever. But right now, we have the ability to say, I'll just use Firefox. And then everything that we want to use is available.
0: And to be clear,
1: that that whole engine issue is about to get a lot, a lot more competitive, right? Because Internet Explorer is going to go over to the Blink Engine, and so you're going to have upwards of 85% of the entire internet using essentially Chrome versus Firefox. I mean, there's a couple other ones in there that might equate to a percent altogether, maybe, if they're lucky. Uh, But so now is really the most important time to jump in on the Firefox bandwagon and and start getting involved with the Firefox project and start using it and start advocating for it uh, because I think they're going to be up some against some stiff competition the next couple of years.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. And also Firefox has better features too. Like, I'm going to make a video about it just to show it. Like here's all these different things that are so amazing in Firefox.
2: Containerize. The container That's tabs
3: is one of the most important ever. things. Like that is so good. Also, the keyword, uh, keyword shortcut for bookmarks is incredibly useful that a lot of people don't even know it exists in Firefox or what it is. And essentially you just say, I want to uh, take a bookmark, add a keyword to it, which is by, like, you know put a couple letters. So if I want to open YouTube, I just put YT and push enter on this, on this address bar and then bam, it goes to it. Like there's so much you could do with Firefox anyway that a lot of people aren't giving it a you know, attempt because they're like, oh, it's slightly slower in some cases on some websites. Well, if those websites are created by Google who creates the web engine, that kind of makes sense. That's not a reason to worry about it. Like, I think you just like, oh, it takes like four milliseconds longer.
2: Like,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. So you heard it here first, coming through a YouTube channel near you soon in 2020, Tux Digital does Firefox.
2: There you go. We'll, well see the video yes, in
3: 2020. 2020. Thank you, thank you, Seb. <laughs> you were totally on on point right there. But something that has come uh, recently and not in twenty twenty, and that is OpenShot has released their newest version of their uh, video editor. If you're not aware of uh, OpenShot, is like a is a video editor that is kind of designed for uh, getting really, getting creating video edits in a easier way to get it like a really quick. Uh, low barrier to, to get it because so like it's very similar to how you do like the splits and cuts. Uh, but this latest version of 2.4.4 has been cl- uh, said as being the best version yet of OpenShot, and it contains a lot of performance and stability enhancements that a lot of people are, are, are have been wanting for a long time. So one of the things that they added was a new feature for keyframe scaling. So you now have the ability to um, be more reliable for and, and properly scaling. When you do uh, uh, changing the frame rates, so if you change the frames and you're for, like animations and, and whatnot, it allows you to scale it properly so that you can do like speed ramping. So if you have Maybe. a video where you are recording in a really high amount of frames, you can control the speed ramping better. So like if you want to do slow motion, so you record right. in six, uh, 120 frames rather than 60 frames, and then lower it down to 60, and it does like a slow motion effect. It's like they're ma- improving the uh, keyframe scaling for that which is very nice to see and also I think the improved SVG importing or rendering is a much better uh, it's, it's because of having that you can have better scaling of your of your content because SVG is, is a very powerful way of doing uh, graphics because they scale infinitely and I think probably the most important feature that they did which I don't even know how it works because the way they described it in their blog post or their announcement was magic so they said they have a relative file path structure allowing you to have completely portable project folders or uh, you know just project files in general. So what it does is that it, you take a file that's on your computer, you uh, put it into your project as a, the full path to that file, and then somehow when you save it, it turns into a relative path that then when you move the folder around will figure out where that file is when you reopen it turning it back into a full path. I don't know, but it sounds like magic, but it still is a really cool idea.
2: Hmm. Do you believe in magic? Well, I do. I thought this was a pretty awesome uh, setup here that they have uh, for OpenShot. Uh, Some of these things are, this happens all the time. I need to make room on my computer. I move some files off. It breaks one of the projects when I do that, when I go back to edit it later. Very important stuff. But one of the things I thought was the most interesting is that the developer... Jonathan Thomas who I'd love to have on the show uh, eventually is now working on the project full-time and I think that is generally a great sign for a healthy project when somebody has enough community support donations those type of things that they can do this full-time and it also means you're gonna see a lot likely or should see a ton of new improvements and things like this continuing to happen as now they can dedicate instead of having to go to a normal job and then come home and take your family, and then try to build a video editor. Now you get to have that as your regular job. So this should make OpenShot, I think, a much fiercer competitor in the video editing world here uh, soon. So I'm glad to see that that took place. Do you?
1: How do you? Where do you view OpenShot fitting in, Ryan? As a person who makes content day to day, could you live in OpenShot, or is it just not there yet?
2: You know what's interesting is I got such a bad taste in my mouth with OpenShot when I first started looking for a video, this is years ago, and when I was creating, at first I was like, wow, this is so simple. All the cutting, trimming, uh, snapping, things like that were even easier than Kdenlive Live as far as the initial GUI, and the GUI looks better, I think, as default. But then when the project would fail and you would lose everything, or you would put a clip in and it <laughs> um. You know, maybe I filmed it at 30 frames per second of me talking and 60 frames per second of me playing a video game, and when you, it would basically try to switch everything to 60 frames per second, then basically making this audio. There were just so many crashing and problems and things like that. But as I understand, that was years ago. OpenShot has come a long way. I guess I'm so far removed from it now. It's not something I'm so used to. Lightworks and Caden Live. I'm probably am not going to go back and just relearn something for the sake of it. But OpenShot is very much, to me, that um, thing we would push, hopefully, if, if all those things have been fixed, new users, too, is this is something, if you're just wanting to do basic family photo editing, that type of stuff, yeah. uh, or you know, basic video edit, it's, this is the tool to utilize. And maybe it'll become more than that, maybe it is now, in the future, but that's kind of where I see it, is somewhere between the hobbyist and yeah. getting to the pro.
3: I think it's more of a, it's kind of like the, the it's a good point to say it's like the beginner stage of an editor because it has all the, the fundamentals of it, but it doesn't have uh, long-term production value benefits. Like for example, they just recently added some other stuff. Like the version two point four point three was like I think the first version they added waveform on the clips. Which mm-hmm. without waveform on the clips, you can't zoom in and edit really like detailed uh, you know, production edits. Such an important feature. It's like, so like any, so like when open shot had this ability to zoom in all the time, it was like, well, what are you zooming at if you don't have waveform on the clips? So like there's certain things that they are, you know, adding new and new features. by the time they get, um, ready to, uh, you know, like do 3.0 or something, I think that it would be a valuable, um, Ap- application at that time, but I think right now they're still trying to do catch-up to other editors that already exist. Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, it is worth saying that if you aren't uh, you know, used to doing editing, when um, Kaden Live has a, some... It does have a little bit of a barrier to entry because you have to learn how it works and how the specific uh, controls are, are built into it, uh, whereas OpenShot is very clean. I'd say it's like kind of like if you... It's like an open source Windows Movie Maker or iMovie
2: or something. That's exactly what I was thinking. Windows yeah. Movie Maker, yeah.
0: So for, as someone who's considering to put different content on my YouTube channel other than caravans smashing all over the place, would you recommend starting off on OpenShot? Because it's going to be that little bit easier. And then as I want to become more sophisticated, moving on to Caden Live?
3: No. I think someone who's not intending to get to the point of doing sophisticated production, then yes, you should use OpenShot. But if, if you just want to do, like, uh, I want to edit some home movies or something, it's just casual editing. But if your intention is to do it more at, at a production level, you should just start with Caden Live and then just learn how it, you know, deal with the barrier. The yeah, because then you're you're going to learn, you're going to find features that are in Caden Live that are not in OpenShot. And once you like if you started learning open shot you're not going to be able to uh, transition very well because it, they, they work very differently like they have yeah. the same fundamental structure but they they work differently so you're going to have to learn new things anyway so i would just mm-hmm. say just start with katie live at that point if you're going to yep. if you're going to do production level stuff anyway
2: great cool. so next up in the news is open xr zero dot nine zero now the reason why i thought this was particularly interesting is because noah you are going to be building a vr setup soon is that right i
1: am in the process of building it now actually well you know i've ordered the case i think i've settled on a case and i have uh did we decide on the 580
2: 580 or 590 i think i think whatever that was whatever
1: whatever that was 580 or 590 whatever you recommended that has been ordered it's sitting in a box i haven't opened it yet Uh, So yeah, the process has begun.
2: That's awesome. So uh, for those interested in VR and AR, and I'm seeing a huge push happen. And I I think we mentioned this in one of the shows where uh, we saw people predicting that uh, virtual reality was going to be this, you know, $50 trillion market. And okay, nobody owns one of these because they were super expensive. And we really didn't see it going anywhere. But it seems like there's a resurgence coming back now where the industries are finally getting full completed games versus just kind of these hokey, like, Hey, I'm going to be a chef and chop up some vegetables. We're getting full actual (laughs) games from game studios. We're getting a lot more hardware support and the hardware costs as they naturally do in technology are starting to drop. And so, Uh, For those not familiar with OpenXR, Kronos explained it in their announcement this way. OpenXR seeks to simplify AR VR software development, enabling applications to reach a wider array of hardware platforms without having to port or rewrite their code and subsequently allowing platform vendors supporting OpenXR access to more applications. So a big paragraph to basically say we're creating a standard and it's an open standard. But that's not all, Collabra is shipping an open source version of OpenXR dubbed Monado, which will work with the devices supported by OpenHMD. So sometimes you hear like, hey, we're going to create this open source model and uh, for any device that wants to support it, uh, we'll have it out there. And you're like, yeah, great, we'll get some no name company that nobody's ever heard of, release a VR headset that nobody wants to buy. So this just not an uh, API that's not going to be supported out there. It has tons of support being backed by companies like Microsoft with their HoloLens, Facebook with Rift, HTC Vive, PlayStation VR, LG VR, basically all the major virtual reality uh, devices out there are supporting this standard, which is fantastic. So this is going to be a very eventful thing, and I'm very happy that we're seeing the open source model being mixed in here so that we have lots of good support hopefully on Linux with VR stuff. And I, for one, am super excited to see Noah taking technology to the edge on Linux here by building a VR setup with Linux and seeing how awesome it will be, of course, utilizing Team Red. Team
1: Red. I think uh, virtual reality has the uh, distinct possibility of destroying society. Uh, as as I watch how, like you say, it is taking off like wildfire. Every time you turn around, somebody who's interested—if they're getting into gaming—they're playing with virtual reality. And even if they're not into gaming, they're playing with virtual reality. They're they're buying those Samsung, uh, you know, hundred-dollar glasses or whatever that you put your phone sure. in, and and and, and so the, the the issue is, I know people today, <clears throat> Michael, that don't leave their computer because they are so <laughs> attached to you know their their online life can you imagine the world we're going to live in if we get to a point where people go i built a house i have a theater in my house and why would i ever want to take my vr glasses off and go back to the real world where i live in a crappy apartment yeah i like my huge awesome house that i built in vr land and i i feel like that is going to be the downturn of society i really do man
2: yeah, I mean, if you look at it, there's a lot of science fiction movies and TV shows mm-hmm. playing off of this idea right now, Ready by uh, where one. people just be, basically look like sickly corpses laying in a bag with a hollow lens on and living their life through an avatar. And, you know, it is an interesting problem that society is going to have to battle. There are literally addiction groups for games like World of Warcraft, which mm-hmm. don't require a VR headset, aren't very realistic but have that constant grinding and social um, aspects built in without you know, actually having to physically see other human beings. It makes me think I want to get into one of those games now. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Uh, but I, I do think it's an actual issue that we're going to have to face in, in setting up limitations for society. Also, think about HoloLens, this idea, and you are more familiar with this than any of us know, but the idea of taking your Google glasses that you had and Microsoft seems to be taking that to a whole new level, but this idea of having a constantly connected world, right? where, I mean, just the other day, I saw this guy on a flip phone, on a flip phone in this day and age, driving down the road at 70 miles per hour on the highway, trying to read a text message on it. I mean, imagine if they have hollow lenses on from everywhere, it's crazy. Here's the,
1: the thing, the Google Glass, which I'm actually, I have on, because I was playing with it just the other day. Um, the, this actually enhances life. Right Like I really believe it's, it's, a, it's a second function of life. So the display actually hovers above your eye and gives you real-time information about what's going on in life. So as an .IT. consultant, when I walk into a building, the number one complaint I'm dealing with is, we don't have Wi-Fi. If I can walk into a building and go, "And without ever opening my laptop, look up and go, "Well." I'm getting an IP address from your DHCP server and it does look like you have a connection out to your WAN connection. So it's probably something on the computer. Let me walk over there and fix that. Boom. I am instantly more valuable to that person. And that is super impressive to other people around me. And when I am standing there and it, like one of the things that did was uh, is is giving you real time information about stuff and without ever taking my eyes off of a conversation can uh, be become aware of of new piece of information. It 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 enlightens the conversation and changes your life in a way that I can't even begin to describe. And it's just a darn shame that these did not uh, these did not take off more than they did. Um, you know, having the camera on the front, being able to capture ridiculously adorable moments for my kids is a huge thing. So I put these in a totally different class than VR. Uh, these I one hundred percent support. VR kind of scares me.
3: Right. So he's. he's but the good thing about this OpenXR project is that, it, or the standard that they're trying to build, is going to is going to make a standard between AR and VR, so that they're still getting right. the benefit if you if someone wants to use AR, they'll still get that. And I do agree that AR is a has a, a much more uh, tangible benefit right now, especially with like like the Hololens is a really cool concept too. But um, the just VR, uh, AR in general is pretty cool because you could like just go like one of the things I saw that was really cool is there was this ar uh, app that you could uh, show some uh, a various different language of some words that's on a sign at like maybe you're traveling or something and you have a sign that you you go to montreal and it's in french you can have it automatically translate on the screen what it says as you're walking yeah like, like, that's a very cool idea. A yeah
2: that's
0: awesome so some more gaming news is google stadia Google has released their Google Stadia game streaming platform. Now, before we get into the details of this, I'm just going to put something out there for you guys, and you can tell me why I might not necessarily be right. Everybody is talking about this is going to be great for gaming on Linux. My question is, yes, you'll be able to access this service, but it isn't actually running on your Linux machine. So we'll we'll come back to that in a moment, because... This new streaming platform means that you, you need no console or high-powered gaming PC. You can play AAA titles from your Chrome browser or via the Chromecast on your TV. Some of the features they're promising include 4K at 60 frames per second with high dynamic range, which is a higher level of contrast between light and dark, multiplayer online and in the same room, server-based acceleration using amd gpus at 10.7 teraflops game streaming via youtube and community gaming this means you will get access to day one triple a games on linux is that statement really true or are you just getting access to these AAA games on your browser, which happens to be running at Linux. Well, so I mean, what's, what's the difference between having in, access
3: yeah. while you're using your computer versus having access of it being native on game on this platform? You still have access to the game, regardless mm. of what platform you're using. And you're right; it, it totally is this that. It's going to be
0: good for Linux and Linux gaming production.
3: Um, pr- production maybe not, but for like, is it going to be good for Linux gaming? It's going to be more accessible to casual users who want to. Uh, use Linux but the only reason they're not is because they want to have access to the games and this could have even, like I don't think that, that there's definitely some downsides to it in general but I think that there would be benefit to people who are not using Linux just because they want to play some games that they don't have access to this would allow them to have access to it even if it isn't native but at the same time, they could still use Linux and have all the, everything else that they wanted. So, that, I mean, there's going to be some types of, like, um, you know, competitive gamers who are not going to be wanting to use this. But uh, for the casual gamer, I think this would be definitely a benefit.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a shame that, to when, when I was on Noah's show and we were talking about this, you know, I think it's a shame that, like Noah said, they're going to have to write their games to work on these Debian servers to To work with them, but they're probably not going to take the time to actually then port it to Linux for us to just go ahead and run the game natively there, uh, which is how most people prefer. There is so much controversy around this idea of being able to play these games. At the end of the day, as somebody who's into technology and somebody who wants to see more people experience Linux, and if a lot of people's holdup is gaming And the AAA titles that they want to play, I think this offers them an option outside of dual booting and an option that doesn't require them to go spend another $500 on a PlayStation or something else to play those games. So that's cool. Hmm. At the same time, it's Google, and there is no doubt that Google will find a way to ruin this product with privacy Invading microphone, turn on, listening, devices, all, all that junk. They are. They're
1: already starting. Google Assistant integrated from day one.
2: Right. I, I mean. So it, it's just. You know. People in, I know in the Linux community tend to give Microsoft a hard time and it's deservedly so, but Google to me is just out of the two. I'll, I'll, I'll wear Google glasses or utilize a, a, or a Microsoft glasses or utilize a Microsoft product before I would touch a Google one because at least Microsoft has money they make elsewhere other than serving up ads and Google really doesn't have a portfolio very vast in that. So I, I, I'm more excited for what this means for the industry and what we're going to see Coming from the folks at Sony, Microsoft has a version of this coming out. I'm sure others will follow suit as well. I honestly don't. I, I don't hope that Google is extro- is very successful with this, just because I have the feeling that it's going to cost people privacy to utilize it.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. I don't. I don't want this to be successful, but I do think that if it was to be successful or if it was successful, it would be beneficial in some ways. Um, but it is worth noting that in order to really support Linux and a gaming system, and as even on the servers, of like they were using these Debian servers, even doing this, the more than likely thing would be that the developers would choose to support Vulkan. And by supporting Vulkan, it's one of the most fundamental pieces of supporting Steam Play. So the Proton uh, project is focused heavily on Vulkan, and when uh, Steam was asked how do they make it where their game would be supported on uh, this this Proton Steam Play thing, they said as long as it's working with Vulkan, Almost guaranteed that it'll work on Steam play so if they do build it for Debian servers and they do only focus on that there's still a potential that if they focus with Vulkan, we'd still have to be able to use it and node it at least not natively but at least with like Steam play proton
1: I think you'd have to ask what what do we think their end goal uh, for for what does game distribution look like ten years from now and I think that the game industry would tell you that their desire, would have game distribution to be much like the Netflix model where people pay their monthly subscription and we get to control what content is available, who plays it. There is nobody pirates a Netflix movie. That's not a thing, right? You can't pirate off of Netflix. You either have a subscription or you don't, or you, you know, steal somebody else's, but the, the, the threat vector for pirating uh, content on Netflix is very, very low. And yet, um, and I, I, no, I shouldn't say nobody does, but it's very, very low. And so I think the gaming industry is looking over there mm-hmm. and looking at what people are doing with the video and going, hey, all we need to do is put some XYZ coordinates coming back the other direction, and we could do exactly that, and we'd make bank. We'd make way more money because people would have to perpetually pay to play those games, and people accepted it with video. Maybe you know nobody owns DVDs anymore. They just stream everything. Maybe they would accept that with games. Wouldn't that be great for us and our bottom line? And that should terrify us.
3: Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I agree, but there's also this, there's there's technical problems with doing it. Like with a, a movie, it's passive. You don't have to interact with it and you don't have to worry about if there's a buffer because even a slight buffer, you can still watch the whole thing after the buffer's done. With gaming, a buffer is not allowed. If you have right. any slight mess up of the signals, then people will just rage on it. So like uh, competitive gaming, which is getting much more popular now, will mm-hmm. never use this, will never allow any kind of game streaming because you're guaranteed to have some kind of hiccups. You're, you're going to lose frames. You're I disagree
1: lose with that. I You know what? I remember those arguments when, when I remember when PC gaming first started to become big and I remember listening to those exact same arguments going, you can't game over a PC over the internet. Are you crazy? The lag is going to be ridiculous. No, that will never take off. The only way that you can game is if you have a, a, a Xbox console connected and you've got two users in the exact same room. That's the only way. It'll never work over the internet. And look where we are today, right? Well, you have a,
3: you have one point here but you also have another point where you're you're not talking about the there's uh, there's not just a bottleneck of the technology there's also the bottleneck of of the ISPs having data caps. So we have like Comcast who has like this, this limit of how much data you could send, put gaming on top of that, especially cause you're gaming, you're streaming the, the game itself, the picture of the game, plus the signals back and forth constantly. Plus the Netflix, so you're going to get those data caps really quickly. So unless we have a, uh, uh, like where the pipe itself allows you to do this, it doesn't matter if the technology is possible because you still have that bottleneck.
1: I I don't know that I agree. So the so the internet is getting faster and the the data requirements really aren't any greater than an actual Netflix movie, right? Like if you can stream a 4K video, you pretty much can play the game. I agree with you that latency plays a much bigger role, but I think we're that, we're, we're pretty much there today and I think that situation is only going to improve over time, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it'll improve, but I think the 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 competitive aspect is where I'm saying. Like I don't think I think the casual gamer will totally do this. A lot of people will mm. totally do this. People who don't really care about the frames, don't care about the latency, don't care about that stuff will absolutely do it. In many cases. But I do think that the competitive aspects and the esports, they don't they're not even going to consider it because the the possibility of latency, the possibility of like limiting the frames, the gamers who who do this for a job are not going to accept it because they're Potentially losing a a advantage as they would have of having high quality hardware and having access mm. to the to, to this the, for like an SSD running everything, having that ability and all you have to do is send the signals back and forth to the server, like when you have you have to add all the extra stuff to it they're definitely not going to be wanting to do this at least not for many 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 years maybe even I think a decade. both of you
2: are right to a degree but I think you'll be surprised to see the pocketbooks come out and you'll see your pro streamers switching to this just because they're paid to play it on streamers this yes but not competitive yeah. gamers like I, I, I think you'll also well I think they'll 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 be Google or one of these companies the smart ones will go in and start sponsoring the very organizations where you're you are professional players are playing and they'll be forced to play on it because it's sponsored by Stadia. So I I think this is a situation where you're seeing, um, you're, you're seeing massive companies again, take over these industries. Now in this case though, what's good is Google doesn't have the relationship with gaming studios like Microsoft or PlayStation or others have. So there's a real chance unless everybody sits on their hands and does nothing for a lot of competition to come here, which means the technology is going to get better and better and better and compression technologies will get better and lag will improve and server farms are going to be everywhere to support And the internet
1: itself will improve
2: And the internet itself will improve. So all, you know, I'm not a fan of Google obviously uh, I'm not I probably won't be the first one to jump on actually I probably will use it just because it's new technology. <laughs> but I, just, just to play with it, but I'm not a fan of all the idea. I like to use my computer and all the money I spent on it to be able to stream games and play at 200 frames per second instead of being like, hey look, I can do 60 yay uh, but it's cool. It's cool what they're trying to accomplish oh, yeah. here. I think mm-hmm. the competitions gonna push things. Uh, forward for everyone and while I while as soon as somebody else comes out with a product like this I'll probably switch to it and not use Stadia they're at least they're the first ones jumping out there with it by the way Microsoft tried to do something very similar to this with their Microsoft Xbox which made them lose the entire gaming console market fight if you remember, they when they were releasing the new Xbox, they said, we're not going to have physical disks. Everything's going to be in the cloud, and people freaked out to the point where they had to go back and recreate the new Xbox to have a physical disk to put it in there. By that time, PlayStation had already dominated. But up until that point... Xbox was the number one console out there. Then they lost nearly half the market share back to PlayStation when they did this. So it's interesting to see now we're more accepting of this idea of all mm-hmm. of our content being owned in the cloud, all of our content having the ability, because Steam and things like that are the same way, for censorship to take effect. Now imagine Google Stadia doesn't like your particular you know political stance and you stream games and they just shut you off their service. This is a real problems now that we have when you have this kind of one sector control over yeah there is people. another
3: company that is already competing with it i forgot what it's called but it also starts with an s um and i saw a review of them like uh, not a review but a demonstration of their their tech on youtube and it's an interesting approach because it's very similar um and the way that it could work on any device as long as you have like a controller connected to the wi-fi and everything so it's mm-hmm. it's an interesting approach and i do think that it's 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 totally, as far as technology goes, I'm very interested to see what happens. I right. definitely, I want to try it, even if I did have no intention of continuing to use it. I still think that it's, it's interesting as far as the tech goes, especially mm. considering the Stadia controller that Google's making is <coughs> going to have its own Wi-Fi connection built into the controller <coughs> to try to alleviate some of and those I, latency. Did, did,
0: I, did I read that right? It's going to be something like $99 to $150 for this controller.
1: Yeah, it, it kind of makes like sense. About what you're getting, you've got yeah, you've got a mini computer essentially at that yeah. point.
3: So it's mm-hmm. it, essentially it is. It's got its own. Uh, wi-fi connector in it so it's it's got it's not only is it a controller which is around fifty dollars or so depending on like how most wireless controllers are around fifty dollars or forty dollars then you have the extra in b- b- added thing of having it its own network connection to your wi-fi so it can do the latency thing and it kind of makes i mean it's an expensive controller but it does kind of make mm. sense for what it is and if you were not yeah. necessarily purchasing the games the investment isn't that much so I don't know i i think it's interesting in general and i am curious about its support on linux and how we use it but at the same time it's google
2: no matter what our stance is raise your hand or not i guess say you will are you going who will use this when it comes out i will
1: yeah i will i will
0: zeb it probably has pixelated like games i know <laughs>
3: Well, you can have Minecraft in it. It'd be great for you. Yeah. Yeah. Doom it's got R- voxels. R- Remember we were, we already R- talked about it last episode where you love voxels. Might not like pixels, but you totally love voxels.
2: So, so all <laughs> of us are scared of it. Uh so scared of what could be done with it, but all of us will probably play with I, it. I would say a more
1: accurate technology. I would say a more accurate uh I would say a more accurate description at least for me. I'm not necessarily scared of it. I just know where this rabbit hole goes and so I know where we're going to wind up. It's not a fear of it necessarily. It's just I know where we're going to wind up. I knew the day I started seeing these smart home things come out that -hmm. that are not home automation. I want to make that very clear. As soon as I saw that stuff coming out, I knew what that was going to lead to. Consumer grade devices tied to the cloud and there's no putting that genie back in that bottle. There's no Mm -hmm. way we're ever going back to a time where before Uh, you know, Internet of Things, right? And this is going to be the the exact same thing. Five years from now, seven years from now, uh, this is going to become the the, the predominant standard for gaming, and then we're just going to have to live with that and acknowledge way back now we all saw it coming and just acknowledge that there's really not much we can do about it. Yep. This week in our software spotlight, we're taking a look at Peak. Peak is a really useful utility for quick recording your screen or sections of your screen, making them into, you guessed it, GIF animations. You can uh, not peanut butter animations, GIF animations. If you also (laughs) export in formats like MP4, if you're wanting to do tutorials, make a funny meme, or even do video production, this is a great tool to grab. So make sure to check it out. It's P-E-E-K. Go check it out and find it in your local repository.
3: And our tip and trick this week is Xkill. There are a lot of ways to kill, you know, these pesky programs that won't close. They're like, you know, frozen, frozen, or you know, they're not responding to you. Uh, this particular tr- uh, tip is uh, it allows you to open a, cur- a terminal, then type in xkill, then hit enter, and you'll give it, you'll be given like an x cursor to move around, and all you have to do is click on the window that you are wanting to kill, and it will just destroy it, like kill the process right there. So it's it's a nice way of easily getting access to uh, delete uh, windows deleting the application without having to worry about running what particular finding out what ID the window has or whatever It just launches this uh, this command and if you're using something like a, you know, a, a launcher like an app launcher like uh, uh, Albert or K runner or something that can easily have access to it at any time, or a drop down terminal, it makes it a lot easier to kill anything you want. It's kind of like a raid bug spray for your system for your desktop. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's right. It kills on contact. I love this. And the other day I was uh, gaming with someone, and uh, the game had a bug in it. When you hit a certain point, it just wasn't working for anybody, and it would just kind of lock the screen up. And so I was like, oh, let me X kill out of this. And they're like, what's that? And I was like, oh, let me show you this whole new world. Because yeah. uh, it's just so easy to type X kill and then click on the screen, and boom, it's gone. And then you can go back the rest of your day. Mm-hmm. So it's awesome.
0: Now I don't know whether this is a feature or the, whether it was just me making a mistake, but I'm pretty sure the first time I tried to use XKill, before I got to the window, I clicked on the desktop. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh no!
3: <laughs> I've never like, actually done that, so I don't I know don't what happened. I've never tried that either. <laughs> that that's... sounds bad. And
0: I'm pretty sure I'm... I was in KDE at the time, so all of a sudden it was like,
3: oh, it, it might it have killed KWin. The
0: Disappeared. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So, Yeah, do do not use XKill and then accidentally click on your desktop. You'll be interested.
3: Yeah, we should maybe, like... I got
2: something to do after the stream.
3: Yes, test that out. (laughs) But I also want to, like, send a bug report. It's like, hey, maybe it should not, like, give these processes that are dead
1: an exception. uh, I've had to kill my desktop process. Yeah. Don't go that far. Let well, it kill everything. I mean, okay,
3: give Kwin a, an exception because when it crashes, it just automatically pulls itself back up anyway. So it's it's you don't have to worry about it.
1: <laughs>
2: Stop it. <laughs> All right. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. Thank you so much. We love our patrons and our coffee supporters. We just want to give them a special shout out for their support. I heard it too
1: that's right it is coffee and ryan got it right this week that is the way you can support the show coffee offers a nice monthly option that'll allow you to have the same perks as patreon but there'll be a link in the show notes on our website to join coffee the perks include things like access to the live shows unedited versions of the shows as well as our sincere gratitude so you get the absolute worst show at the absolute most amount of money and we appreciate you
0: tremendously (laughs) And please get back to us and let us know what you think uh, or ask that burning question via numerous methods. um, We can take emails via comments at DestinationLinux.org. We've got our Telegram group, our Discord group, Twitter, Mastodon, and a whole host of other ways that Michael can tell you about on our website at DestinationLinux.org forward slash contact so please keep these comments coming and questions now we know we don't always have the time to get back to every single one of you but we try our best so please be patient if we haven't got back to you and we are now getting quite a goodly number of these so don't be shocked if you come onto the show next week and your email wasn't used it's not that it wasn't good enough it's just that we're getting an awful lot of these to try and pick so Eh, it could have been because it wasn't good enough Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. If it it was praising
3: Ryan too much, then we totally have to, we can't put that in. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Or Michael. But
3: yeah. No, I'm totally going to put that one in. The one you wrote? Yes. Of course. Uh, I'm not Brandon. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, If you want to, our our content does not stop here because we have a lot of our own content individual stuff where we have our own channels and our own podcast in some cases. So if you want to find out more, you can check out uh, DOSGeek. You can find out Ryan's content about various different hardware. Checking out all his really high-end hardware that's really interesting to to check out and see how it works with Linux. Uh, Fill your brains. You can can fill your brains, exactly. Go to youtube.com slash DOSGeek to get that. You can also check out Zeb's content, where he's going through it, plowing through a bunch of caravans on Euro Truck Simulator, and potentially some new content he's talking about doing it previously, like about you know we're going to see how well he gets uh, you know gets. Maybe he's in a test to see how, how quickly he can get past the barriers of learning Caden live and, it's, and it's stuff like that. It would be really interesting to see. Yeah, you can, you can also check out my content by going to tuxdigital.com where you can find out a variety of different videos for Linux-related, maybe even a Firefox video that I'm talking about uh, previously in the show, which will someday come out. I can car- guarantee someday. And Sometime
1: before 2025, he'll make it out.
3: That I can totally guarantee that will happen, Yes. <laughs> And uh, you can also check out the this week in Linux podcast that I do, where it's about news podcast, and uh, you know various different uh, in-depth looks at various different news regarding for, for, throughout the week. You can also check out Noah; he's got his show, the Ask Noah Show. Where you can you call in and have you can do uh, call in and have questions about uh, business, tech, or Linux-related content, and he will be happy to uh, help assist you. You can find out uh, more by going to AsknoShow.com. and also be sure to like that smash button and share the show on social media.
0: So, everybody have a great week, and remember that my journey to self is just the beginning of the destination. <laughs> well nice. done, nice. <laughs> nice. Well Thank done. Thank you, everyone.
1: Thanks.